What's up, true believers? Or should I say believers in truth? I don't think that we're uh, Stan Lee-style true believers here. <laughs> I think we got a lot of skepticism about what we see. Welcome to the next installment of Marvelous Demystifiers as we are continuing to push forward into our analysis of Moon Knight. This time with a little more reasonable ambition, <laughs> going for just one episode out the gate. Episode two. So if you didn't catch our previous breakdown of episode one, we're definitely going to be building on themes that we talked about. That might be worth going and checking out. If you haven't seen the actual six episode television series, Moon Knight, that is what we're covering here tonight. It is not necessary that you watch it to understand the themes that we're going to be breaking down or to garner the insights and hopefully spiritually minded ideas and wisdom as we reverse engineer the social engineering 
and look at the inversions that when put in order will reveal to us the truths of how this place actually works. So with all that, what's up, Gabriel, Gordy? Good to see you guys again. Gentlemen. Hail, hail. Good to see you. Good to be here. So this one, we found some things also separately from kind of like this particular storyline that are filling in all sorts of interesting little holes as we dig in these. Are you guys finding that as well? Yes, very much so. It's <laughs> quite remarkable how the the fictional ingredients bleed into the what is reportedly the real world. Yeah, right. uh, can you expand on that? What are you guys talking about? Well, there have been some discoveries. So apparently, uh, uh, some sarcophagi turned up. Underneath Notre Dame, that was a topic on Crow Triple Seven recently. Uh, people talking about finding the sarcophagus of Osiris. A uh, very phenomenal little uh, bit of research. James True uh, did a breakdown on, on it with Crow. And he did bring up an interesting point uh, that touches on my work, and that is the Analima and the significance of that ritual that took place on tax day on the Analima. Yeah, he uh, must be listening to you. Yeah, mm-hmm. very likely. For sure. So uh, I hope he I hope he digs because uh, <laughs> there's a whole lot more where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Yeah, the Egypt stuff just never stops. It is the continual wellspring of symbolic canon that seems to be informing everything everywhere, especially in terms of the secret societies that encode things into our media. So I'm excited to get into this one. Do we have any opening thoughts about bridging between episode one and episode two? Maybe some important themes that are carrying over that we can open up with here. Well, I had this one since I started watching this again. I remember when I read the book a few years ago that I wondered why they projected Khonshu as like having a long beak. Because if you've ever seen an actual picture of, like a depiction of Kanchu, it's a falcon head. And so I always wondered, like, I mean, as a comic, that's just a, like, comic writers take all sorts of interesting licenses and, and, you know, don't stick with the necessarily the, the, the myth per se. And like, you know, things get changed. They take our artistic license. That's one thing. This, this was a conscious choice, it feels like, that Conchu's head skull, like using a, a bird skull, I think is a cool um, device, right, for Conchu instead of, instead of, the, there, thank you, um, instead of like an actual falcon, the head of a falcon, they're using a, a, the skull of a bird, but it's clearly never been a uh, falcon skull. It's got a elongated nose, right? And so I'm. I was thinking about this this weekend, or the between last time. And I'm like, man, I really want to know why 
they chose that. I've, I've not, I don't have an exact um, answer why I think that is, but I have ideas. So I was looking through um, different bird skulls of what that actual bird skull might be. And it looks like a crow to me. And um, which that has all sorts of different um, mythologies that stick with it, but it's always kind of messenger of death kind of things, you know, symbology. Um, But I thought it was an interesting choice. And as I was going through some old pictures, because I've I've been to the Houston Museum of Natural History, and they have a real big um, Egypt display there. And I had taken some pictures because I knew I'd had pictures of Khonshu on the on some of the sarcophagi, the real ones that were there. Well, real as far as we know, right? Um, but they had, um, you know, the the falcon skull or the falcon head. But as I was flipping through old old pictures, I find this. Can I share my screen? Yeah, yeah, I've got it pulled up though. If you want oh, you got it pulled grab, up. Oh, yeah, grab it. yeah, I know what you're dude. doing. Um, as I was flipping through pictures, I found this costume that I did with my daughter in 2016, which looks remarkably like a kind of Khonshu character. Uh huh. So, but what we were going for was kind of what she was wanting was kind of a um steampunk kind of uh, mask of the red death kind of idea. This is what happened. This is what it came up with, but it looks remarkably like, you know, with the wraps and everything and the, and the bird head, it looks like Khonshu, which is also, I mean, wouldn't it make sense that Disney would want to keep the diseased kind of thing in the, uh, back of people's minds and just kind of sticking it out there kind of, cause that plague doctor stuff is, we know that epigenetically we remember stuff and, and when you find out what those, those uh, plague doctor masks were for, you know, and people have this horrific genetic memory of disease, um, it would make sense that they would kind of keep that, in the zeitgeist, because clearly I was seeing that in the zeitgeist in 2016. Yep. And it's got that reaper aspect to it. You know, mm. it's the, you know, they couldn't have fused an icon more uh, perfectly with the idea of death. You know, it's a skull and it's a reaper sickle in one. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. You clearly see the Reaper sickle, but he's also holding a staff in a lot of the Marvel version too. So you kind of combine the pole and the the scythe and very Reaper-esque. And it's brilliant that this came up now and in this episode because I was already, you saw from the title, everybody that I named this, Meet the New Doc, same as the old croc. So <laughs> thematically on point that we made this realization that Khonshu looks like a plague doctor 
that's going to be very important as we go forward. And once I started thinking that way, I was rewatching episode two and seeing more and more reasons why, Oh, yep. That is definitely symbolically there. And it makes you wonder, like (laughs) when you're creating a work of art, it's hard to layer in so much symbolism to this level. And maybe some of it's always a question in my mind. Maybe some of this just comes through the imaginal and the creators don't even know what they're putting in there per se. They're just like, Oh, this looks cool. This fit feels right. And yeah, it feels right because the <laughs> imagination is a portal to the uh, truth to the infinite. Yeah. So there's something there. Good weave. And I uh, really like that picture. <laughs> really, really interesting that you even had the wrapped hands. That is right. a cool sink. Isn't that weird? Like yeah. I, I wouldn't have even connected with it. I didn't, make that connection and I would never have thought about it. I texted it to her. I'm like, she goes, Oh my God, it looks like conscience. Like, yeah, we're back. So yeah, it was out there somewhere. Yeah. So may, uh, one theme that would probably uh, fill in a little as we go is the idea that Kanchu might represent like out, outmoded or outdated uh, means of remedy. You know, uh, the Mm -hmm. fact that it's that because that plague mask was, you know, it was thought to give people protection so they could go into whatever, into uh, plague infested zones. They would fill the mask with certain herbs and the herbs were believed to have the ability to prevent you from getting sick. And so uh, whether that is true or whether it worked or not, or whether it was the power of suggestion. That the maybe the just the idea that this mask gives you the ability to go into an area and not get sick, uh, all of those questions are definitely going to get addressed throughout the series continuously, are fundamental to the the questions that are going to be put on the table, uh, and it relates to enclosed cognition in a major way. Uh, yeah, giving people a costume so they believe they have certain powers or entitlements. Right. And then isn't that kind of the thing is that's what they argue over is give me the suit. (laughs) An enchanted garment. Uh, Let me pull this up. Even the way that he's portrayed in comics has there's a moon knight on the left has that beak esque part of the cowl of the hood. Interesting. I heard this from I don't remember if I was reading this from one of his books or he posted something about this on Instagram, but Dylan Sicosio mentioned that he can't prove, I think it was in his newest book. He didn't, he said he couldn't prove it yet, but he was starting to think that whenever we get stories of plague and pox, like when the native Americans were said to have been wiped out by disease and by smallpox blankets and things like that, that that's really just the conquerors rewriting the narrative because they just killed everybody. And the reason why they may have to do that is because the people were too warlike to submit without having been basically wiped out nine out of 10 of them. And that fits with what we're getting into here because <laughs> we're, we're basically saying with Kansu being the, or Kansu being the outmoded old system of remedy, remedy is the key word there. Remedy is applied after the fact, after something has gone wrong. And with the new croc, 
with Amit, Amit's justice, as we're going to talk about going forward, is about preemptive strike. <laughs> so we'll uh, we'll hold that there and start getting into the analysis. But really, that idea of preemptive strike is what would be happening if you went and killed all the natives before a war could break out or before they could rise up again. And calling it a plague, it sort of justifies your behavior because you're like, oh, well, we didn't do it to them. They just got sick or it's the it's the magical germs and bugs. So I don't know if that's accurate, but it's an interesting idea. And maybe not as a blanket statement, pun intended. Maybe it's not true in every case of supposed plague and pox, but probably that has happened somewhere in history that a big group of people got wiped out and then blamed on a plague. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, Chance, I sent you a graphic on Telegram there. Uh, this is kind of bringing forward some of what we talked about before with uh, in the first episode we did on this with uh, the name of Kanshu. And I also dug in on the actor who plays Mark slash Steve slash question mark. And Oscar Isaac is his name. And it's just interesting because he plays um, in other films. He's often in a position of king or royalty or a captain of a vessel or a ship. He's always in that commanding alpha position so far in most of his roles. And this is, uh, as an actor, he's taking on a, um, a different role, a new uh, persona. For, the, for, for me, it's my first time seeing him in this uh, a more uh, emasculated personality in the beginning. So I think that's interesting that he's been so mochismo in the past, and now he's kind of got this soft uh, persona in the beginning of this of the film. But he's got the O scar is his name, right? So he's got the scar, and that's the initiation at the beginning. Uh, and he's got the Isaac, which is was a sacrificial uh, character who was offered up, who was taken up the hill on a um, a goose chase, or he was, was going to be a sacrificial offering, and then God changed his mind and went back on the whole ritual. So in just that name, Isaac, we have a sacrifice going up to the top and going back down in being reversed, having a retrograde or a reversal expressed in the archetype of the name. So the concept of God changing its mind or rewriting the story or saying, ah, gotcha, I almost got you there. It was all a joke. You can kill this lamb and this other animal instead. That's very interesting that that is in this fellow's name. And then I just took that. Isaac, uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> you see the Isaac? <laughs> and it's scarab also. Oscar has the scarab. Uh, in his name, which is the beetle, uh, the scribe, the author. This is the, you know, it's all fiction. We're definitely dealing in fiction. But then his last name, Hernandez, you kind of move that C uh, from Isaac. You move it over to the Hern, and you get Chern, that's Ser Nunos. 
I thought that was just an interesting connection that the Isaac Cairn has Cairn in the beginning. Hmm. I think Hearn, just Hearn by itself has connections to that same green man motif. Exactly. You got it. Yep. And then, uh, I kind of futzed with his last name on this next part. I took some liberties, uh, but I see Dionysus very much in the Hernandez. I see Dionysus in the name Hernandez. Well, okay. So that now we're getting into the whole Mercury character and Hermes or Tahuti or Thoth, who is a Heron or an Ibis. And right. just a quick look. Apparently, Hern is an archaic term for a Heron. Wow. wow. So there's that. There, yeah. Ooh. So that's definitely a Thoth. In uh, built in big time. So his name is like many costumes that you can just scribble and scramble and put on many, many uh, remarkable archetypes just layered into his name. So then a little further down, you'll see that I just brought forward that Kanshu, the symbol of it and reminding everybody that it means the King's placenta originally, and that they came back uh, in re- more recently have tried to interpret it to mean going back and forth, which is Bostrophodon, much like Isaac, going back and forth, going back on the word, rewriting things in a new light, or looking back at things and seeing it with more context, thereby changing the meaning of things from the past. That's even more remarkable. That's some high magics to inform your perspective to such a degree that you see the past completely in a new light. Uh, that's that's some pretty high magics. Uh, But then you go a little further down on here, on his bio, and some really interesting numbers came forward here right away. For one, his age is 43. Later on, we'll see that he has that number is in the in the film. We'll get to that later. So that's very uh, profound that his birth, his his biometric resonance has a uh, relationship to 43. He was born in 79, which is the periodic number for gold right here. Uh, And also this uh, 19, can you go down a little further? There's something, oh, when he started his career was in 1996. And that's just interesting because that also is uh, reflective very powerfully on the periodic symbol for gold. So I think ultimately I would say that his bio is telling us he's a golden child. Yeah, someone mentioned in the chat, it seems like he's in the club. He was apparently in a Spider-Man movie. I don't remember that. I do remember him from the new Star Wars trilogy, though. Wasn't right. he like Poe was his name or something? And I didn't see the new Dune, but if he's in all of those, oh, he's yeah. in the Mickey Mouse Club for he's sure. Club. You know, I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up, like these faking, faker actor types, because going back... um I don't always look at other, you know, YouTube videos about Moon Knight and stuff or, or something that we're researching because I want to dig it myself. You know, I want to find out these things. But I did for the first episode of this one. And um, so that first scene we di- that we dissected so, you know, it took us an hour and a half to do five minutes. Um, so if you... I did a little YouTube search on that and lo and behold, who wrote that whole orchestrated, that whole beautiful scene of sacrifice and, and slavery and all this stuff. 
Ethan Hawke says he came up with that. And ask the actor who plays Harrow, the villain of this show. Right. So we're supposed to believe that this, this actor, like, admittedly, if you know, like, any actors, like real actors, especially Cali, California, in the club actors, they're the shallowest, most not unthinking humans you you could ever possibly meet. There's no way that they could get that kind of symbolism without, you know, really digging this stuff and having a deep understanding. I mean, and maybe he did come up with it all on his own and, and he just pulled it out of the ether because he's just a creative freak who is, who is tied into ancient symbology, which I think is complete bullshit. And they wrote this stuff for the promotion of these movies, these, these shows, they do these little things to build up like the credibility of the characters that we're supposed to be seeing. Like they're supposed to have some sort of understanding or spiritual weight. Like they, they understand what the hell they're doing. They don't understand what the fuck those people are doing. They read us, they read for you those scripts and nothing. Hey, that's a cool costume. That's what they'll, that's what they'll choose on, you know, what director has clout and, and, how pretty the the sets are going to be or where it's going to be set. You know, these guys are not, I mean, prove me wrong, Ethan Hawke and come on mystical demystifiers with us and explain it to us. It's bullshit. (laughs) Well, there's a good point made here by uh, Joey crazy Fox. He says addicts on drugs possessed can create some pretty wicked stuff. That's a good point that again, what is inspiring this? Where is it coming through from? Are there other forces at work here? I mean, this is a show about possession. He's essentially possessed by Kansu. So this is another good good share from in the Universe Telegram. Thank you, Jenny. Check this out. Heron Skull. Mm. Wow. It looks like it reminds me of a knife, honestly. Yes. Very, uh, very much reminds me of Atropos also, the shears of the oldest of the fates. Hmm. I dig it. Wow, that's nice. Or a closed compass. Or a closed compass. Excellent, yes. I was thinking of like the... Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> the snip. Yeah. Okay. So he, let's um, give our audience a brief, brief catch up of where the show was at the end of episode one and where we're starting off at. And then we'll get into just going through screenshots and moving through the plot and analyzing it as we go. Whoever wants to volunteer to that. Somebody's going to have to refresh my memory. Was it the curtain? Was it the curtains at the end? Or is that the end of episode two? The end of episode one is in the bathroom when he's in the bathroom. Oh, yes. I'll just give the quick recap. I'll do it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, no problem. So the first episode, we meet Stephen Grant, who is um, a neurotic gift shop employee at the museum, the Egyptian Museum in London. He is having issues with his sleep, trying to keep himself awake. And he keeps waking up in weird places. and. Uh, he finds this amazing, this weird scarab when he wakes up in the Swiss Alps and he has to escape from a bunch of goons. 
they're trying to kill him. And uh, without going too far into the detail, he winds up running into the same cult leader that he met in the Swiss Alps at the gift shop. And then this guy summons a jackal, a, a dog monster, and it attacks him in the gift shop at night. And he f- flees into the bathroom. And in the bathroom, the mirrors are facing each other. Entire walls of mirrors by the sinks, and it creates that whole infinity chamber effect where there's, you know, an endless refraction of the mirrors facing each other. And there's so much broken mirror, mirror symbolism in everything MK Ultra, everything Disney. But that's where the episode ends. He allows his other personality to take over, and he becomes the Moon Knight. The suit comes on, and <laughs> yes. So yeah, that and then that's where it ends. He fights the the werewolves versus Jen thing, right. which is interesting too because his first villain in the comics is Werewolf by Night. That's the first person that he fights. I yes, think. and so that really seals the mythology uh, consistency in the fact that it's that Jen and werewolves are antagonists; they're nemesis to one another. Uh, and that was this that marcates the spring equinox because they're uh, uh because the water was erupting uh in the bathroom scene there so it's uh and it even i mean it, it was kind of sexual had that sexual component cuz he's like shows him in the bathroom get, you know breaking shit knocking it over uh but it's also his first kill this is the first blood so it has a virginity aspect too. This is, you know, initiation and a very carnal aspect. So yeah, he goes through that whole nightmare. He gives control to the all, the man in the mirror and he wakes up the beginning of the next episode. He wakes up and he's in his bed and he's like, oh, thank God. I'm actually just waking up from a nightmare. But he gets up in a panic kind of, as I recall. And tries to jump out of the bed, and his right ankle is chained to the bed, and he face plants. So the ankle thing is huge. We talked about that a lot in the previous episode, the onk and the ankle and what the right ankle means. So we won't get into that again. But this is uh this is where we start out. So yeah. he doesn't spend a lot of time in his house or his apartment from that point. He next goes to work, as I recall. Is there anything symbolically interesting to you about this uh, opening scene? We know the initiation scenes are always important. Big time. Yeah. So the very, very first thing they show, uh, I think their audio is uh, is an echo back to the fight in the bathroom. Uh, at the very beginning, you hear like the struggle of him t- fighting the wolf. And then the camera focuses on the blanket. The camera goes to the blanket. That is exactly what happened in the initiation of the very first scene from episode one. He lays down that cloth. So we have the blanket, the covenant, the covering, the Mm. two-dimensional, flat, placenta, birthing mythology is consistent from episode one to episode two. And then he jumps out of the bed, the calma, the calm of ma, and he's tethered. That's the tow cable, like we talked about in the tabernacle. And it's also the hanged man card, which is the cross of St. Peter that goes upside down 
like Peter Parker is the hangman card. And Peter was told he would deny Christ three times before the rooster calls. His first words in this episode when he does a face plant hanging upside down like the hangman of St. Peter is no, no, no. His first three words before the rooster crows is no, no, no. He denies Christ three times in the very beginning, the first thing out of his mouth. And that's a theme throughout the rest of this episode. It comes up a few times. So here's something interesting, too. I didn't catch this till just now, but good point right here, Jenny. Sand. Actually, mm-hmm. that first thing that it shows is not a blanket. It looks kind of like a blanket. It's actually a pile of white sand that is at the foot in front of his bed. And then it quickly zooms to him in the bed with the blanket and he jumps out. And he does everything you just said. But if you pay attention, it's quick. The first step that he takes out of bed is in the sand and puts a footprint in the sand. And that's so, why he slips, right? Is because he, his foot slips on the sand. Right. Maybe, or the just the the rope catching him with the chain. I don't know, right. but you get do you get where I'm going with this, Gabriel? The first thing after he's born is his yep. footprint. Is, yep, this is the this is impression. This is the stamp act. This is a birthing ritual. Absolutely, this is going back to uh, enlisting, inscripting humans as property at the very beginning, the first step into the world. Which the first thing that happens when a baby is born is they get the footprint, right? On ink. The ink red bull. Yes, that's the first rite. The first rite of passage is you go into two-dimensional fictional realm and now you are trapped. your soul. Yes, this is tender foot. This is the whole tracking system. And and that really connects to the talk in the first episode about shoe and in the, the gators and the shoe gating you between the earth and your, the sole of your foot. Yeah. This two dimensional realm stuff is just too real. (laughs) It is just too real. It's remarkable. Yeah. And the next thing that happens is he looks in the mirror. Here's a shot of this. He gets up, he goes and looks in the mirror and he tries to talk to the man in the mirror, which is a two dimensional world. But uh, the man in the mirror does not answer. Yeah, you know, Homie Romy and Juan have brought up the psychomantium is a, dev- a device used to for people to maybe bring forward spirits to commune with the other side. Have you heard of that, Gordy? The psychomantium? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so what you do is essentially a box of mirrors. The idea is that you would have all sides of a cube would be mirrored, right? And you would sit in this box. They would build them around around a chair. So you'd be sitting in a chair, but it'd be pitch black. So there's it's kind of like a sensory deprivation, but a psychomantium, it's, um, it's mirrors. So there is no input, but there's... And there's no light, but it's just reflection of whatever you bring into it kind of idea. And um, I've heard of a lot of people seeing all sorts of lights and uh, things like that in those. And um, But the kind of idea is that you connect to spirits. That's, that's the context of which 
I've heard it used was like purposely almost like seance kind of idea. But I mean, you're doing it alone. It's a dangerous kind of thing, but it's real. Right. I'm going to have to look more into the psychomantium and that's actually new to me. Yeah, that's a trip. It's kind of new to me too. Uh, But just one quick thing. We've talked about this in the past, but so the moon card is card number 18 and that's uh, 180 degrees is, you know, is a flat plane, but that's the reflective value of, of silver of the moon. It has reflective things bounce right back off of it. So that is uh, still, it's still the horse that they're beating us over the head with, whose name is foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, and the moon, of course, you only ever see half of it. Right. Which does, is really interesting, symbolic of our experience in life, because we only ever see 180 degrees at a time. Yes, very profound. Yeah. And that is interesting, too, because that has to do with we're identifying only with the body and only with the senses whenever we are limited to that type of vision. Even though human beings or our spirit (laughs) beyond the physical has the capacity to see 360 degrees. I can't do it on purpose, but I've had it happen before in meditation where I'm sitting and I got my eyes closed and I get into that hypnagogic state or has this happened to me before too. And when sleeping where instead of going into the dream world, I basically have the feeling that I've been awake the whole night and that I can see the entire room and I'm in a thoughtless still place mentally. But this has happened in meditation too, where all of a sudden I'm like, Whoa, I can see the room, even though I'm sitting here with my eyes closed, but I can see all of it. It's very hard to describe linguistically (laughs) what it's like to see 360 degrees at once. And it's not the same as this type of sight. But I did bring this up with Bear Landa that I recently heard a story on MU where they're talking about a guy who had retinal damage from some degenerative, uh, rare degenerative disease. And then he got himself fixed spiritually, long story short, and his eyesight returned. So it's just like that thing in Doctor Strange where the guy is using magic to be able to walk, even though his legs shouldn't ever walk again. So <laughs> that, uh, I mean, having to do with the moon card. Yeah. It's interesting because we're talking about this, these two pillars. We're talking about the private and the public. We're talking about the yeah. straw man and the living man, but the living man is a soul. It's beyond <laughs> and soul is the sun, which is the, uh, you know, what the is other. casting the reflection on the moon. That's right. Number 19 card, number 19. So I sent you another one, Chance, in the Telegram. I guess we should get this out of the way since we're talking about the moon card and the fact that he just killed a jackal. He just killed a uh, a dog. And, you know, the djinn versus the werewolves. This is an old decode I did a while back that Anubis and the jackal are 100% uh, correspondent with Saturn. Um, and you can see the gematrologic of that in these uh, numerical correspondences. It, they are the exact same numbers. They're just, they're just rearranged. Um, and this, this is the most simple cipher. So this is not, not even in septenary. This is just the, I believe is the most basic. Yeah. 
So uh, I find that quite interesting because it is pivotal to my cosmology as an electric universe Velikovskyite to hold that belief that the Saturn sat at the North Pole in a tower or an axial alignment in a primordial age. And the, the elites believe that there are certain things they can do to bring us back to this balanced alignment, golden age concept, uh, which is just profound and mind-boggling. But in this research, I discovered that Anubis has a really profound name. Anubis has a nickname that is he who is at the place of embalming. And this really hit hard with Mario's work. This was coming at me all at the same time as I'm getting to know Mario's work. And this is where we look at the Stark Tower. Stark Tower is an Anubis. It's a tower in the shape of Anubis, the jackal-headed god. And also, that means that all of this nose scraping, all of this PCR testing that everybody's been doing was all an embalming ritual, a observance of the tradition of Anubis. It was a Saturnian death cult ritual all the way. And people are marching themselves through an embalming ceremony and patting themselves on the back like for being whatever, meritorious or virtuous. Um, so if you roll down a little more, so the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper are seven stars each. They make the shape of a seven. They make the shape of the embalming tool. They're circling around the North Star, the North Throne, where Saturn used to sit. So he who is at the place of embalming, Anubis, used to sit at the North Pole at this spot where the two embalming tools are today. So that is giving us a map. If you want to find Saturn, he was at that location where the dippers used to be circling around. And uh, this is also why you have Cupid and cup bearers and chalice bearers as the right and left-hand man of the king at the top of the throne. The symbology, it's amazing. It's like all of the uh, royal uh, arrangements of their king's courtroom, the king's throne room, is based on the stars. And so this is uh, Aleister Crowley's moon card. It's got two jackals looking at each other, uh, framed by two lighthouses. And uh, the whole thing is encoding Hawaii in a major way because of this magma chamber down here below. Uh, uh, it's really quite an amazing card, but the symbols of this are going to come up again later. These waves, these wave signals that look like, you know, maybe different types of earthquakes, different uh, uh, maybe sine waves that the earth goes through, grand solar minimums and maximums. Maybe it has to do with some voice-to-skull technology waves. We'll get into that in a little bit. But these are the dogs of war, D-O-W. That's the Dow Jones. These are the D-O-W, the dogs of war. This is They've rebuilt Rome a long time ago. And there's the two towers also intrinsic to this moon card, uh, which on my territories map lines up with Hawaii. So I'll just shut up. <laughs> Another way to look at it, too, would be with uh, Saturn being Anubis and the embalming that the uh, Hermeticists Hermeticists say the angel of life is the angel of death. They're talking about the sun in summer and the sun in winter. And when the sun goes into winter, it becomes Saturn or Kronos. And then later we gave the association of that name to 
the actual planet Saturn. So that's another reason why you can connect Saturn to Anubis because it's when the sun is going down to die. And that's why you have the two aspects of Thoth or Tahuti and Anubis being like two aspects of the same character. Interesting. Um, I don't know if how much we have talked privately or publicly about the djinn and the werewolf. Um, I have, did we discuss this on last time? Cause I don't think we did. And it's, this might've been just between you and me, Gabe, but uh-huh. I, I don't remember where I've read that or heard that, but, uh, and maybe it was you and I just, where, where did we get that? Was that the Velikovsky thing? I think the gin versus the werewolf ties into, um, a fella that Crow has brought forward in, uh, who's from the Middle East, who is really oh, yeah. focused on the Quadim and that guardian spirit, the guardian, well, the, the accompanying spirit who, uh, from his perspective, seems to be very mischievous and more interested in recording your, your bad deeds. And your the sins. word Quadim refers to a scribe. Right. It's keeping a record and goes to tell the devil all the things you did wrong every night when you're sleeping, uh, very mischievous from his perspective. But I think he's the one who, who said that Gordy, the djinn are antagonistic to the, uh, werewolf, which let's just put this on the record and maybe leave room to build it out. But what if this is, what if the werewolf, uh, interest group is representing Skinwalker ranch? And what if the jinn is an, an antagonistic uh, spiritual practice? I just want to put that into the ether that maybe, you know, the fact that they are saying we are not down with the werewolves is saying we're not in with this skinwalker tribe. We're on some other tip. Just something to think about there. I'm going to move us forward in the plot here. We've done a great job getting to 47 minutes of the stream and only covering two minutes of the <laughs> actual show so far. <laughs> We've done it again, <laughs> living up to our own uh, expectations here. So good. But the symbolism of two pillars comes up a lot in this show, but in particularly this episode, which is maybe appropriate because it's episode two. And we get this shot of him going to work where you see him. It's upside down. So that's another mirror or inversion symbol, right? The upside down. That's what they call it in Stranger Things. Someone in the chat said that this guy, this actor, uh, Oscar Isaac, actually has a a homunculus that he gave birth to anally that is actually a cast member of Stranger Things. So (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome. (laughs) And yeah, Cozy Corona doesn't feel like 47 minutes. It's because we're having fun, fun stuff. It's like that. But so here's him going through the two pillars. Uh, he gets to work and everyone's kind of the, the hive has been disturbed, if you will. There's a lot of activity because of the whole vandal vandalizing the toilet <laughs> thing that happened last night in the show. And he is watching the security cam footage with the security guard who keeps calling him Scotty. And he says that they're about to see some real Area 51 MI6 spooky shit. 
but it's just him running from something invisible, like, like a crazy person on the cameras. And then he comes back up out of the basement and on the camera, he looks right into the camera and he's like, that's you bloke. And Steven says that, that ain't me. (laughs) That isn't me. No, there is so much in just this scene. There's so much in just this scene. Uh, One thing I want to point out is to see the triangular shape behind his head, how he's in a pyramid right here. That's a, that's a, like a Ken Wheeler's uh, uh, 90, 30, 30 pyramid or whatever he calls. I, I, what does he call it? The 90, 30 something, 36, 36. I forget. That's Ken Wheeler's pyramid that he's standing in. And later on, this theme of the Orgon pyramid and the paperweight pyramid gets flashed in the, in the, uh, as a prop periodically through the film. And if you pay close attention, you will see that there is a, uh, there, it's a, a culmination of libido is being built up in each of these scenes. And if you think of what an orgon pyramid is used for, it's like a, um, a vessel. It's a, a receptacle of sorts. And so his life is experiencing these trials and tribulations every time this pyramid shape is being flashed. And if you pay close, close attention, you'll see that he's like acquiring frustration at every flash of the pyramid. He gets fired from his job. Uh, later on, he's getting uh, the cops are uh, grilling him and the Oregon pyramid comes into play. And then it culminates later. I'll say, I'll just leave that open because it will culminate in a big ritual at the end. So here he is, he's in a pyramid. That's going to be a theme going forward. Sorry. And that's just this episode, but that it, what you're saying applies to episodes later down the road too. It's a big thing that goes, it goes on and on, but what do you got Gordy? Cause and in the this, show they're like, uh, what's up with this pyramid that is even asked a few times. Right. Yeah. They're clearly bringing attention to it. Maybe even kind of poking fun at the masses of like, you don't even know what this is for, what this does. Right. And, and so what's the guard, what's the uh, guard at the gate? What's his name, Gordy? The, the guard at the gate. Oh, this, security this guy, the security, the security guard? Guard. what is his name? I don't remember. Joachim and Boaz, bro. Is JB. <laughs> Is it really? His name's JB? Really? His name is JB, guys. It's Joachim and Boaz for (laughs) real. It's amazing. I brought JB. Yep. I do love that he he still calls him Scotty. Like, that sounds like something. I looked it up. His name's JB, dude. That's the two pillars. What the fuck? I didn't even notice that. I didn't catch that. Wow. I thought for sure you guys would pick that up. Well, here's that imagery again. It's so chock full of stuff. You can't. I watched it three times and the third time I was still finding stuff. JB, guarding the gates, the threshold. He comes to the two pillars and talks to JB. Wow. This frame right here is the same thing. This, there's the, the center the center individual and then the two pillars. You can see it right there. They, they pull the shot off like probably dozens of times throughout yes. the whole series. Like I've seen this kind of like the two pillars and the individual in the middle, like it's uh-huh. chock full of this through this whole thing. So chance, you can't play any of the, any of the show. Can you, we can only do stills. 
I seem to get away with stills just fine, but I don't really want to risk, <laughs> you know, in the intro, I do clips from um, yeah. actual movies, but I overlay it with the, you know, crazy psychedelic graphics. So that gets away, but okay. I don't think that we can hit play safely without, there might be a way to do it, but I don't, I'm not confident that we would pull it off. Okay. <laughs> We're going to hold well, off. The sequence unfurls in an incredibly interesting way. Uh, they are not missing the chance to sanctify the gate and really highlight uh, all the initiation mm. aspects. It is to the moon. All, you know, it's got checkerboard floor. They got the pillars all over the place, like you're saying, Gordy. It's wildly nuts. Um, but uh, something that really stood out for me is the uh, that back image, like you were saying, with the statuary. I think the way that you just sent it to me where you recorded your TV, we might be able to get it. away with that. <laughs> I would love if we could, because it, it the movement it. of the uh, things that are going on, it tells a story that is very valuable. This is a, um, and you don't really even need the audio, but here we have, see my massage chair in the corner? Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so checkerboard floor here he's got this is the workman coming in coming out yin yang he's white he's black give and take mm -hmm. steven's get, wearing a checkerboard shirt by the way yep. checker pattern shirt yep here we have uh can you pause it so here we have this is wild so the checker pattern continues with the fractally with this uh this perimeter this boundary that he's uh, putting together this we're in a right angle pyramid right now. This scene is inside of a pyramid right now, right here. And um, the, this guardian of the threshold, this uh, JB who's uh, who's easily distracted by the way, that's an important psychological aspect to uh, to distract the guardian of the threshold is pivotal to these rituals. Yeah. In the first episode, he's interested in watching otter videos. And I was thinking about that today because it's got that OTT, <laughs> the TT thing that came up nice. in Vibrant last night. Nice, man. Yes. He doesn't even know this guy's name. He calls him Scotty. So he's obsessed with otters. And he's watching too many otter movies, and he keeps thinking this guy's name is Scott Ati. And Scott T is a two T's too. Yes. So he's a unworthy guardian at the threshold. This is kind of what we, you know, what we train for is to be a uh, skeptic, to be uh, critical of what we take in, to analyze everything and scrutinize. You know, that's what we're hoping to encourage through this, you know, through this process ourselves. When we're talking about two T's, just to like make a quick point of it, we're talking about the the Thoth or the Tahuti. That guy, Thought, starts with a T and ends with a T. Right. Yes. So what's about to happen? You see the arrow is pointing at the main character's mouth. Goes right in his Ooh. mouth like wow. fellatio. Oh, what and a nice he, catch. And wow. then it comes out of his mouth and goes in the other guy's throat. Watch. It goes in his throat. Boom. Wow. Right there. So here we have a ritual. This is amazing because Jesus was in the temple when he made that when he made that statement. It is not what goes in a man's mouth which defileth him. It is what comes out. And that is what we just witnessed played out in a temple. 
uh, it was a, a ritual to biblical uh, parables, which are probably Egyptological way before that, uh, to be even more honest about it. But then they absolutely are Egyptological. Totally. I mean, even that that uh, the kingdom of heaven is, is within you quote from the Bible. Yep. Exact same words are in the Egyptian book of the dead. Nice. Uh, can you bring the Aeon card forward? Because the Aeon card is in the background all along, like you were showing us, Gordy, with the two statues. This is <laughs> Snake Jones, I think you are right. Nice, nice. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, the two statues in the background are uh, the Aeon card, which takes two, is the 20th card. That's two X's, two T's, TT, XX, 20. 1010 is 20. This is the Aeon card. It is in Taurus, uh, in the uh, temple of Taurus, where we pay our taxes. Uh, Very, very, and where we also progress into the twins, the Gemini, as the next next station. So I find it quite profound that in the background of that little ritual, um, there was an Aeon card. Uh, which, by the way, she's like doing a uh, finger. She's keeping a secret. She's doing the secret thing, which hails back to the Hierophant is keeping secrets as well in that location. Uh, very, very interesting. It's like kind of telling us to look for things that are going unsaid. It's like saying, do you know what I'm not saying? I believe Horopolo is shown with that often, too. And that's a version that's like a Greek version of Horus. Sort of a in between state between Horus and Apollo, but it's all the same. It's all the same character, really. It's all the same T to the T guy, the Thoth guy. Wow, dude, I'm, Gabriel, you're really shining so far. <laughs> I'm glad we got you on the team. I got, so, I got one more. I can't got believe one I missed more. so much of this. I gotta have to really watch and scrutinize. One thing that I just think for sure I'm gonna do going forward with these is put on the subtitles so I catch names like JB, what I didn't hear before. Excellent call, man. Excellent. I got one more on JB because I I made this one early on. I think this was the I've watched it twice now, so maybe I'm ahead of. Ahead of everybody. <laughs> I watched yeah. it three times, man. You're oh, catching cool. stuff. Nice, nice. So I made a graphic because early on in this project, we were talking about the night at the museum with, um, what's his name? The actor? Uh, yeah, Howdy brought this forward, that in the movie Night of the Museum with uh, Ben Stiller, that the being that animates all of the museum exhibits and makes them come to life like Toy Story is Kansu. Of all beings. Right. The, it, the reanimating spirit that is such a profound thought. You know, we, we breeze over these words, but like really chew on that for a second. The reanimating spirit. That is not just like raising people from the dead. That's just like when you fucking stumble, get the fuck back up and get back in the game. That's the reanimating spirit. You know, well, also, and how do you point it out that Kansu is not a god of healing or resurrection like Isis would be. And he was surprised that they use Kansu as the being that resurrects Mark Spector and animates things in Night of the Museum. So what does that tell us if it's the 
if it's the moon that's animating, <laughs> the moon is also the thing that makes things cold. You know, it's symbolic of the one half, the cut in half, the cut, the cut material, the, the paper yeah. cut, right? Yes. Very interesting. That is interesting. So I think it's like a, a zombie thing. It's the, wow. it's giving life to the dead or to the fiction. I dig that. I totally dig that. So uh, I had to put in a cyborium because uh, that is a term that is, I've newly been appreciating in a major way. It's everywhere I look nowadays, but that is this covering that is over the chariot card here is a, these four pillars are upholding a, a cyborium, which I think may have to do with the four pillars of the satanic order. Uh, what is that? Uh, egoism, moral relativism, uh, social Darwinism and eugenics. Those are the four pillars, uh, kind of dark, dark reflection of a uh, very ancient idea. But here is this guy, JB. He's even like in his very, this is the very first scene he's flashed on the screen. He's even doing one finger up and two fingers down in a super subtle level, which is probably not intentional. That's probably me reading into it, but I just thought that was interesting. He's got a one up and a two down. That's the J and a B. Uh, the one and the two, these are the standards. These are the standard operating procedure of the matrix we're in 12 inches, the metrics of the matrix. Uh, Many, many JBs going on here, but I just thought I'd bring this. Uh, it even has, uh, he's in the chariot. This is another interesting point, is that JB is the commander of the the actual functional throne of the museum. He sits in this chair, and he sees all from this lazy, lackadaisical, sloth-like single location. Didn't Mario say that the the new chariot is the office chair? Yes, I think that's why I put this in the picture is because mm. JB is rocking the, the modern day chariot. Also in this scene, when he brings Steven in to show him the security footage, he's like, don't tell the boss that I let you into this. Then he pauses and he says, arena. Excellent. And then arena specifically, we use that word to mean, we use that word more casually now, but it has specific meaning that it's sand strewn, that the floor is sandy. Which Whoa. is how he started off stepping into sand. And then by the end of the episode, he's going to be actually in Egypt. So there's I, that. That is beautiful chance. Thank you for that nugget. That is <laughs> glorious. And then I, this is maybe, you know, numbers are numbers, but why, why is anything put anywhere in shows like this? I think it matters that the uh, camera that they focus in on of all the cameras is camera eight. And uh, Hermes' character is called Lord Eight because he's the son. He's the Lord of the Analemma. Nice catch. And we're about to see a chimera uh, with this uh, the dog attack, this crazy uh, Anubis attack. Okay, I'll move this forward. So he's talked to JB. Can't believe I didn't catch that his name was JB. <laughs> I accidentally closed my my images here. Okay, so he gets sent to HR after he inadvertently confesses to his crime, which he didn't really do, but I guess there's no cameras in the bathroom, so they don't see what happened. They do say it was a burst pipe. I don't know if that's symbolically important. 
that they blame the destruction on a burst pipe. But a burst of ruptured pipe does make me think of a circumcised phallus. Yeah, it's also a BP, which is a 216. That's kind of triggers my, my ears. So he goes to HR, and this scene reflects very closely something that happens later in the series involving uh <laughs> so uh, i guess we'll kind of is a minor spoiler maybe but first of all let's just point out the symbolism here he's having a stressful moment this is uh him getting fired there's the pyramid on the table like slick was saying and he's between two pillars i mean who <laughs> as jenny and i were talking about earlier who ta- who lays out their office this way you know this is not <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, who's got two exactly matching uh, lamps just like that? You know, this is very on purpose symbolism. There's a fountain on the desk as well. Yeah. Uh, The fountain has a lot of symbolism referring to like the hidden stream of underground knowledge. You know, I see this taking us right back to the first opening scene of the beginning of it all with the pitcher and the water glass. It's even got a cloth there on the tabletop. This is much like the introduction. It's a notepad on the tabletop. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This but is, it's a paper. It's paper. <laughs> yeah. It totally reminds me of all the ingredients of that introductory scene when he puts, when he rings the shot glass, takes the drink, it smashes it, puts it in his feet, and goes walking forward because he's about to get his heart smashed and make a new covenant, a new agreement. And move forward with the pain. And of course, yeah, it's very clear here. You can see, you know, when the mo- when the movie's playing and you're just watching it, you might miss it. But all the time, constantly, the reflection is there. And you can see it down here at the bottom. Uh, let's grab. Let's see. I think I got another shot from this scene. I just really wanted to emphasize the two pillars, the J, the B. Mm-hmm. That's and, over and over again. What was that? That's an aspect of Moorish uh, uh, architecture. Um, Having the reflectiveness, the reflecting pool where the building or the structure is mirrored on above and below. Is he wearing a checkerboard shirt? Yeah, buddy, he is. Under the jacket? This whole episode is wearing a checkerboard shirt the entire episode. Episode two, where they have so much two-pillar symbolism is the Mm -hmm. episode he's wearing a checkerboard shirt. This is that shot I'm talking about, the two pillars and the figure in the in the middle. It's over and over again on this thing. They he uh they ask him if he nicked anything, and he reaches in his pocket to like, you know, come clean, and he pulls out only his uh key and his phone. And that definitely made me think of the key phone, the cough phone. The coffin, the coffin, and that is going to be uh, echoed throughout that coffin. Uh, there will be a cacophony of keys and phones and uh, self-ownership uh, going through as a major theme. And there's another. So, OK, right here, there's a new Shabti or a statue of a god. I might be able to scan around and see if I can tell which God it is. I'm probably not adept enough at Egyptian gods to be able to tell you because there's a lot of them, but that is relevant because this whole thing is a, 
reflection of something that happens later. So HR gives them the sack and they're like, we got a really nice mental institution that you can go to. We've sent people there before. And later in the series, he finds himself in uh, of sorts, a place like that. So when he's there, the person that is in charge there has a lot of the same components going on in their office. So even though it's not an Egyptian themed (laughs) psych ward, but we'll, we'll save that for when we get to that episode, I guess. But I got, I got to say chance, the way you just laid it out there, the way you said human relations. And while this was on the screen, look how the statue has a ghost hovering above it, uh, a spirit on its shoulder. You could say a higher self lined up with the, on the back wall there. Do you see how it's two dimensional goes from three to two dimensional. Right. And when they ask him if he's got any property of the museum to turn in, he does. Uh, This was not a good grab of the screenshot. Let me see if I can. Well, whatever you guys just trust me that this is an out of focus part of it. I just miffed or whiffed it when I was trying to grab the screenshot, but this is his name tag. He's turning in his name and in Egyptian symbolism, the name is called the Rin and the Rin is a layer of your spiritual body. And when you're being initiated, you actually get a new name. So there's that aspect of it. And then another aspect of it is we're seeing the reflection of Stephen paired with the name and the name is on a name tag. The tag is two dimensional and it's on this glass surface. So he's being initiated, being called to leave behind his straw man, basically the straw man being Steven, his uh, public persona and his private living man, powerful connected to the God or God's type persona or not persona, but actual, <laughs> actual self His I amness is Mark, but that's hidden within. So he's trading in his old Rin and the very next thing he does is go to find <laughs> he goes and gets his new name, right? Like, right. He's taken orders. He's, he's evacuated himself and now he's just doing whatever they tell him. Well, but he gives in, he gives them his name. So they own his name tags. Theoretically, you know, his bosses make him turn in his straw man identity, which comes with all the perks and, and benefits and services of being an employee of the, <laughs> of the government or of the corporation that you work for. He trades that in and the next version of his identity he gets here. So he had found in the previous episode a keys and a phone hidden, a cell phone (laughs) hidden in a triangular pyramidical shaped uh, space at the top of his above a wall in his apartment. And here he is. This is a psychomantium, guys comes in here and we'll back up and talk about the psychomantium, but the he finds in here a passport with the name Mark Spector. And from here, I'll kick it over to you guys because we got a lot to say about the passport, but I will just see if maybe you have any thoughts about the usage of a passport as identification over a driver's license and over a straw man. Like I believe there are some people in the truth slash freedom sovereignty movements, you could call it that use the passport or suggest to use a passport over other forms of identification because it's not necessarily the same as um, other forms of government issued ID. 
I don't know about that. <laughs> to me, it looks like the name is in all caps and it's got the corporation's name up here, USA and all that. So I don't know. But the fact is he's traded in his Steven name tag. And the very next thing he gets is this Mark Spector passport. And he's inside a psychomantium. This is a cube. It's a storage unit, mm-hmm. but it's reflective and it's cube shaped. So I'm going to go get my passport and read the inside of it real quick for you guys. Cause it is, it's crucial. It's, it's kind of mind boggling, but just a quick point. When he walks into the storage place, the guy at the front desk recognizes him better than he recognizes himself. Yeah. He, he says, I never forget a face, right? He just gave up his name tag to his job. And now he's like, yeah, I'm Steven, but I'm kind of Mark, but I don't have a surname. He's he like, doesn't know who he is. Yeah. He's like, I don't know who I am. I'm looking for Mark. Basic. I'm looking, I'm trying to find myself. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the, guy, and the guy at the gates of the storage place, the storage locker where people store their junk, he's doing a better job than JB is. At the museum where all the treasures are kept, where all the billions and trillions of dollars, that's he's treating that like garbage. Where this guy at the storage unit is actually doing his fucking job like a real JB should, knowing his name better than he knows his own name. Very powerful contrast, those guardians at the Mm -hmm. gates. And that's what we're trying to be like. We want to see these signs coming a mile away. Yeah, I think that's that's a big thing. You know, what we're sold as, as history you know, through museums and, and stuff like that. I wonder, you know, I, I mean, this is kind of what we do in these communities is question our, our own history and question everything. Right. And why is it that we're being sold all these, these stories about, like, you know, what, chance. I took a picture at the Houston museum. Um, do you have those pictures up? There's one that has, uh, so this is going back to the statue on the desk with the uh, the female figure above it in the 2D. There's a picture. Maybe it's easier if I find it. If you tell me what I'm looking for, I just got to that point in our, our little private chat. There's, there's one chance where um, I have where... Is it okay? There's a tablet. Okay, there's a a green statuary in front of like a blue glass statuary, and then there's a tablet behind it. Can you see what I have up? Yeah, that. Okay. So, would you zoom in on that if you could? The tablet. That's. Conchu and some I, I'm not sure if that's <clears throat> I have to look at this. I just I just noticed it. This is what's on that wall. I believe that that's a, a picture of Conchu with a female figure above it, but she has the red sun on top of her head, not the Conchu figure. If you go back to the the picture of him in the office. Right there. Yeah, a lot of the gods were shown with that. Um, what they called a Uraeus. It's the placenta. <laughs> placenta sure crown, like y'all. And Uraeus even is basically Uranus, oddly enough. Mm. 
Interesting. You know, it's then- your, it's Uranus without the N. So it's like, instead of the in, it's the out. Uraeus, it's the externalization of something internal. I don't know. That's my thinking. And the chat is talking about Spectre. <laughs> They're on it. They're on it. Mm-hmm. Something that haunts or perturbs the mind. It's a visible disembodied spirit, a ghost. It has. It's from the root of where the word to see comes from. Yeah. A Latin word relating to seeing. So it's basically, we're talking about an image. and. We get to Specter, Mark Specter. Here's the image, and he's seeing it in the the mirror of the right. And this this is the Mount Brocken Specter, with where the very first broadcast was uh, put in place in Germany, Mount Brocken Specter. And from the top of Mount Brocken, you could broadcast your shadow down onto the population below and. There were all these uh, myths about that being the the witches, the place where the witches would come to scare the masses and make their huge shadows bigger than they, larger than life. And it has a Plato's cave allegory that was the birthplace of television. So his name being Spectre and it relating back to the very first uh, location where they broadcast TV, television. Pretty powerful name choice. So I got my passport here, and uh, and I just want to read this really interesting single paragraph. It's so simple, but it's so meaningful. Uh, it says, The Secretary of State of the United States of America hereby requests all whom it may concern to permit the citizens slash National of the United States named herein to pass without delay or hindrance and in case of need to give all lawful aid and protection. This is so important because it uses the word lawful. It is not using the word legal. And right there is a huge entrance to a rabbit hole that we could do a whole show on. But by flashing your passport you are using you are invoking the word lawful you are sidestepping the concept of all these legalities and if the guy who you give this to if he has beef with your path with your attempt to travel in search of happiness in this world he's got to go to the secretary of state he can't go to interpol he can't run your information on the private side through his little communication hearing voices in his head when he goes in his car, he's hearing disembodied spirits talking shit about you. This circumvents that. This takes it straight to the Secretary of State, and that's outside of that police officer's jurisdiction. He is in over his own head. Uh, so there's a lot more to say about that, and it does involve the legal obligation to imply that you're not going to stay in the state. If you're traveling with a passport, it implies that you plan to leave a port of call at some point. And there's so much more behind all those words. But I just thought I would put that forward, that they do flash passports through the movie. They don't flash driver's license. They're flashing passports. We're definitely talking about the COVID. The, uh, what do they call that? The Certification of Vaccine Identification. C-O-V-I-D. Um, and 
Chance, I sent you a, my picture of his of his passport. Can you flash that? Because it's got some cool numbers. Yeah, let me pull that up. I was just reflecting on the fact that we skipped over the scene where he talks to the bronze statue man again. Oh, um, Crowley. Crowley, the gold man. Oh, yeah, his, is, his name's fucking Crowley. <laughs> that is kind of important, isn't it? Because it's right between when he gets fired and when he goes to the storage unit, he's having consultation with the statue guy. Yeah, so that happened too. Who's yeah? Who they reveal is not a statue; that he's actually alive. There are break dancers in the background during that conversation. Really? Yes. And that is very interesting. I had mm, there's another weave there, but the break dancers, uh, they they do the robots. There's also they, jugglers in the background too. Okay. Yeah, it's just, there's something there. It's kind of slipping my mind, but I remember the break dancers because the Crowley character breaks character eventually, and he his eyes move, and you can see that he's human. Yeah, Stephen gives him a hug. Yes, yes. So there is a breaking of character. He breaks character. Stephen's character is broken. He just gave over his name tag. There is a breaking of character, intrinsic to this entire sequence, going from losing his job all the way to the storage locker, is a character breaking. That's the break dancers in the background. They're all Ooh. reconfiguring themselves in impossible ways. Man, you're you're on fire tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're on dude. fire tonight, dude. What could I say? Amazing. I'm yeah, starting that. to see life as art this art as a series of is a landmine, a land a minefield of puns. Oh, it is. That's how the priesthood has always worked, too. That's how the la- the languages were constructed with puns in mind. Right. Inter- interlanguage, interlinguistic puns. Right. Wow, we you, are seven and a half minutes into this episode so far. According to the book. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and then Dee points out the jugglers in the background that's juggling between two choices. Also, the Magi card is sometimes referred to as the juggler in the Major Arcana. Boom. So he's right. So he's in, we're initiating, we're gaining mastery of our uh, implements. Badass. I'm glad you brought that back, Chance. Good catch. Oh, I'm supposed to be showing the passport that you worked up. Here we go. Stephen Grant of the gift shop. It's got a nine, three. So that's that's Rosicru- Rosicrucianism. A lot of people put that and on the, the crowd. dilemma too. Yeah, a lot of people put that on dilemma, but it goes all the way back to the RC, the Rosicrucians. So that's his birthday. He's a Pisces, which we talked about last time because he's got his goldfish in his birth scene, uh, and he's got that eight nineteen eighty seven. That stands out for me. Oh, isn't R a nine in reduction? Yeah. Because it's 18. Yes. And C yes. is 3. Okay, yeah. so RC is 9-3. All right. You got it. Rosicrucians, 93. That's also the birth cycle of the Zodiac. Nine months till the baby pops out, the three left over. You know, very sacred numbers. These are not coincidental. <laughs> and then the 87, he's born in 1987. That's an H and a G, which is the periodic symbol for Mercury. 
So he's got the mercurial aspect in uh, in that in his uh, year he was born. And this was just interesting. Later on, they call him Stephen Strange of the Gift Shop, and that just kind of stood out to me because the one in the seven of the S to the G becomes the G to the S. They're just because they're playing with alliteration. It caught my ear in uh, just a funny way. But then very, very bottom down there, you see how the 87 is echoed in this long sequence? That is, Mm -hmm. that catches my eye just in an interesting way because it very likely is talking about, you know, your social credit score, uh, gate recognition, you know, somewhere in the sequence is probably a way to recognize you by your stride. Uh, your body movement, uh, you know, they probably have your Enneagram score on here, whether you're a six or five or three, you know, things like that. I just found that very interesting that there's an eight, seven starts his social credit score down here and eight, seven ends his birthday just kind of all stood out. So those were the things I, I saw. Did you also notice what Cozy Crone just dropped it on us? Uh, his name, Mark, is spelled M-A-R-C instead of M-A-R-K. Wow. The RC is in the name. So there's the 93. Ma, RC. Ma RC. Wow. That is very Rosicrucian goddess is what I see there. The goddess of the <laughs> Rosicrucians. And we can't help but point out that he's a Pisces and he's somebody that's got massive delusions, issues with like not being able to distinguish reality from a uh, dream world. You know, Pisces is depicted with two fish right and he's got two personas definitely makes sense that he would be a pisces thematically right another thing about the passport versus the driver's license is they don't give the same vital statistics like height and weight on the passport yes and if you want to donate your organs or not yeah Uh, i remember someone posted in the universe chat that they had found a in their baseball card collection an old moon knight card and i thought that was interesting that on the card it gave his stats and he was 6'2 225 i was like whoa 225 he's a big dude yeah that is beefy to, to be that much weight at that that's my height that'd be like me plus 30 pounds of muscle extra leg <laughs> so what a third leg a yeah. big third leg <laughs> so one more quick note is the usa over his head um, I believe that he is going to be uh, are depicted into the role of Esau. And that is a very interesting just correspondence that he's got a USA, which sounds a lot like Esau uh, to me. And later on, we will see the uh, enmity between the seeds, between Jacob and Esau, those two brothers. Uh, that theme gets baked into the storyline, the plot line going forward. So just keep a note of that, that he is also Esau here in his ID. Gordy, you got any thoughts on the things we've been talking about? I know we're kind of dominating convo. I'm just sitting here listening to Gabriel. Like I'm here to listen to Gabriel. (laughs) Not that I don't want to hear what you have to say, but he's blowing (laughs) my fucking mind. No, man, this is, this is good. Like I've, I keep now I'm seeing things that I didn't see before. And I love all this stuff. This is why we compare notes, you know, 
Yeah, I, that break, breaking character thing, I thought of that way the first time, I, and then I forgot about it, and then I had to rethink the whole thing, like breakdancing. What was it with the breakdancing? Well, now it makes sense, the whole uh, Pillars thing, because it's the initiation. He's, he's being initiated, because all that first episode was like uh, trying to get him to wake up. Yes. With this, all the music, the wham music, you know, and mm-hmm. all the repeating wake ups and the, the sleep right? issues. And, and, and now and he's waking up. He's figuring yes. it out. And it had nostalgia, you know, like bringing George Michael. That's like a really obscure nostalgia for some of us more than others, maybe. <laughs> no offense to you, youngins. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm too young for that shit. <laughs> uh, thank you, Bob Bobsia Turco over on Rockfin for the nice tip. They said that the RC Rosie Crux puzzle piece for them. That was a big puzzle piece for them. Cool. I appreciate that. Definitely a lot of puzzle pieces being uncovered here. So where we were plot wise, we're looking at he's in the uh, psychomantium and he talks to the specter in here. Uh, about this part, he's basically, Mark is telling him, you're in way over your head. You're going to get in trouble. He finds the uh, he finds the scarab in here again, too. Maybe I should scroll, scan around and find that. You know, you know what? Screen. I, I got to throw this out, too. This was crucial. I'm looking at my notes. I missed that something. The scene where he's talking to Crowley, the statue guy. The first words he says is, I got the sack. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a British thing. They say sacked, but we're talking, he's Isaac. (laughs) His name is Isaac. The actor's name is Isaac. I got the sack. And he's having this character breakdown. And then he says something like, but I don't blame them, uh, which is just kind of interesting. But then here in a second, he goes to the storage unit and he gets the sack. Oh, yeah. And in the, oh, wow. In the bag is his inheritance. Right. And when he opens Literally, it's it full up, of money. It's full yeah. of, it's got a gun, which is very phallus. Right. Metaphor. When, when he opens the bag, what's that? His other identities are in that bag. Right. His first words when he opens it, oh my God. He says, oh, my God, his first words in this in this episode was no, no, no. Denying Christ three times before the sun rises. Now he's getting the sack. He's getting his birthright. And his first words are, oh, my God. And what does he pull out of? Oh, my God. What's the first thing he pulls out is the silver. Nine millimeter, which is nine. There's an Enneagram. It's uh and he's he can barely hold it. He doesn't even know how to hold it. It's 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 repulsive to him. Much like the placenta would be to a man, it's it's uh, it's foul. He doesn't want it, so he throws it off to the side. So even there, he's denying a birthright, and then he goes in for the money and the passport, uh, which he's more interested in. And then they pull, they pulls this out: the compass. This is the compass to Zion, the compassion. This is the uh, scarab, the treasure, the. The guidance. Yeah, maybe we should get a reminder because I never felt like I, I, I feel like I didn't fully gra- grasp and understand why the scarab had the writing on it that it did. So I'm going to go pull up the translation of that from last episode and we'll 
look at that again and see if it has, if there's more light on that. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> okay. This is great. I think we did kind of weave about it, but let's just remind everyone what was on there. The scarab, when it was shown in the first episode, you could clearly see the writing on it. And it says, the hieroglyphs translate to the message, O Kepri, amid his boat, primeval one, whose corporeality is in infinity, eternity. May you rescue Osiris Amenhotep, true of voice, which is a passage from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Right. And it ends with the T-O-V, which is Tov, was the last symbol of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, old school, before the vowels. Ends in a Tov, T-O-V. That's uh, a golden compass. That's a good point, Chatters. Thank you. Yes. So Kepri, this is kind of weird. I, I don't want to do take the time or get us off track, but... We're on all kinds of tracks. Just do yeah. it. I think it also has to do with turning your head, with turning a blind eye. And this is kind of an obscure weave, but I just want to make room for the idea that, so a scatabajo is a, a scarab beetle. Its face is down on the ground uh, because a scribe who's working on their, on their writing is, has their face on the ground. A devout uh, religious zealot has their face on the ground. They grovel on the ground. They turn their head down. They don't even, they're not worthy of seeing. So I just want to maybe also open up the idea that Kepri also encodes turning your head, turning a blind eye, not looking at the facts. Okay, so Kepri is also the rising sun. It's the morning sun and is a scarab-faced god, interestingly enough. That makes sense that Kepri would be the, instead of Horus, you'd put Kepri on a scarab. Trinket. It's kind of funny that we're doing a recap. Hor- basically, <laughs> a recapry. But Kepri <laughs> would be Horus then, symbolically. And whenever it says, may you rescue Osiris Amenhotep, that is referring to the fact that when the sun rises and is reborn at the beginning of the day, that is Osiris being rescued from the underworld because Osiris is the sun while the sun is under the earth. So basically he's rescuing Osiris in the form of bringing Mark Spector from the realm of the underworld or the mirror world back to the waking world, sort of. He's being reborn again as Mark here. I mean, he's not, he's not born yet, (laughs) but he's becoming more and more aware that this rebirth is coming and it will fully come on here at the um, end of this episode. Yeah, I wanted to point out real quick that uh, put me in coach. The user on the in the chat was saying that Mark is a uh, a distilled a brandy from fermented grapes. So it's it's actually when you distill something, it becomes the spirit of something. So he points yeah. out that Mark is a distilled brandy. Essentially, Mark is also a spirit of the grape. Damn, so that has the word brand in it. And a mark, when you mark your cattle, you're branding them. And so here also, we might even have um, a metaphor for epigenetic memory reading signs and symbols uh, 
We've also got the fact that he's Mark, which is Mars, and he's the warrior alter ego, right? Mm -hmm. And whenever you distill the grape, whenever you ferment and distill the grapes, what it is that makes people like, you know, the madness of the spirits that come on after you drink the wine. Yeah. And it's referred to is that's the the reason why one of the reasons why that happens symbolically speaking anyway, is that the grapes are ripening during the season of Leo and Leo is the season when the sun is at its furious height. You know, it's actually a little higher in the sky during cancer and the grapes are, are growing then too, but they're really ripening and taking in that solar energy during Leo. So Hmm. The fact that the his name is Mark and then it's spelled that way and refers to the grapes that are pressed for wine. Uh, I looked it up and it says makes me it think says, of uh, you de vie de Mark, which is water of life of Mark. I guess <laughs> is Mark. distilled from what is left over after pressing the grapes used in wine production. So it is a type of brandy that is true. Pomace, P-O-M-A-C-E, pomace spirit or pomace brandy is liquor distilled from pomace or pomace, sounds like pumice, that is left over from winemaking. So you guys catch what I'm saying here that like he's Mark Spectre is the the warrior and Leo is the fury of the sun and the grapes hold the wrath of God or the son of God. And then you drink that wrath <laughs> when you yeah. drink the wine. If you have too much of it, you you go a little mad yourself. That's the thing. So yeah. that's all symbolically quite fitting that he's spelling. They're spelling Mark M-A-R-C definitely for a reason, not M-A-R-K. And then that gives us that whole gen thing, too, because we're talking about, you know, alcohol is called spirits. And <laughs> we we're talking whenever we did the whole bathroom scene where they let's Mark in and summons the suit to fight the jackal monster. That is definitely a gin reference right. for sure. Otherwise we wouldn't have had that whole thing happen in a bathroom. Right. And you know, uh, second amendment would, uh, comes forward more with the M A R C your right to bear. A R M S is more harmonic with the C spelling of Mark than a K you wouldn't have anything to do with K. So second amendment, the arms of, uh, Aries. Oh, and thank you, Jen, because uh, Spectre is a spirit, a <laughs> disembodied spirit. So we're talking about spirits Boom. here, and it's M A R C. Boom. Wow. So much, so much in this. Okay. So he's, he's, uh, are we still in the storage locker? Storage? Yep, yeah, he's pointing the finger at himself here. I know a lot of these scenes, it's interesting how the the mirror reflection is not identical to what's happening in the physical world. That happens a lot too. Oh yes. You oh, we got yeah. another one. Okay. This yeah. is back up a little bit, but when he turns in his name tag, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, he uh, turns in his name tag and gets the sack. No more J O B. Just I forgot that. No more J O B. Nice. Back to the JB of it all there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what do we got on this this part while he's in the uh, psychomantium talking to himself and found the passport, found the gun, found the scarab, anything else? One thing that is going to come up later is how, uh, well, so the this locker number is uh, 43. This is locker number, which is a DC 
makes me think of Washington, D.C. and all the birth certificates sending us in on putting us on the federal land in D.C. Um, but it also his fourth and third amendment rights are going to get just trampled over the next uh, few scenes. Uh, so that's very interesting. That's something that, I mean, they like blatantly uh, just, uh, you know, they end up coming to his house, searching him, seizing him, go just walking all over what are uh, supposed to be his rights. But isn't he in, um, isn't he in England? Where is he? Where's this base at? Based London. On? It's in London. So he doesn't even yeah. have first or third and fourth amendment rights. That's totally out of context for us to think of that, but it is an ingredient. I just wanted to bring forward that what we consider third and fourth amendment rights are like uh, getting just uh, screwed. And so that gives reasoning for why his true valuables were in a storage locker. And uh, his home is like an open door. It's like a revolving door for the next uh, 10 minutes of the film. He's got people coming and going and he's got no secrets. They're rummaging through his books and his favorite poetry and everything's hanging out in the public. Uh, But he's got to keep his actual real secrets uh, locked away in that uh, kind of a coffin, uh, which is his, uh, again, the key phone, the cough phone. He goes, it's the storage locker. (laughs) I'm getting distracted by the chat. Uh, Right. So he comes out of the storage locker before he goes home and gets accosted by the corrupt police officers he runs into Layla who is apparently Mark's wife and we see this upside down thing again upside down I find that interesting too how look at this the very first time we see her look at this reflection again she's upside down and we get this big solar reflection here here's another a disc here like a mirror nice and Layla actually in the Islamic version of a- of Layla is night. It's the the word means like beautiful night or night. Excellent, excellent. So he's the moon, she's the night. Wow, that's powerful. Which so, will come into play later on in the in the storyline of who she becomes. Nice man, that's that's freaking great. So I'm thinking about Lilith. You know, with the Layla name, in Lilith in 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 the Hebrew Old Testament story of Genesis, Lilith and, and Adam have uh, they have a battle over who's going to be on top in in uh, in the bedroom. And so I find it very uh, profound that he's on the ground, groveling, uh, weak and flimsy, flaccid, <laughs> yeah. uh, and he collapses in front of her. And she comes throttling up on her chariot scooter here. And her first uh, her first introduction is upside down, much like Lilith, uh, having that who's who's on top, who's on first, that kind of thing going on. Speaking of, I mean, we're talking about apparently there's also a Layla in the Bible, depending on how you interpret Genesis, that is an angel, a female angel supposedly Lilith is the first female angel or the only female angel. So I don't know. Lilith and Layla may have some correlation there. I would need to do more researching. It was just a quick Google to see if there's any Layla's in the Bible. And apparently there's some reference to a Layla 
as the name of an angel in the Sanhedrin. Hmm. Mm. Makes me think of the lily flower, which is considered the Mayflower, uh, which I think is on the death card, maybe, theoretically. Yeah, so she picks them up and uh, (laughs) let's see, while they're riding her motorcycle away and she's very annoyed with him for what she thinks is an act and he's putting on an accent and all that. Oh, we skipped the part where he's fleeing. Let's back up a little. We jumped ahead a lot. Oh, yeah. The part where he's he decides he's like, I'm never going to let you control. And whenever also when he's coming to the storage locker. The 43 comes up. Uh, shown with a QR code. QR is seventeen eighteen. Oh, nice! Right. I never here it is. I had to scan for it. I never think about looking for those QR codes. Now that we we saw that in the first one, that they're sticking. Okay, so I'm glad you showed this chance because what um the these QR codes are corresponding to actual if you if you scan it, they will um, refer to actual Moon Knight issues. Like, um, I think that this one is a reference to the first introduction of Moon Knight, which was in, uh, I think it's issue 43 of Werewolf by Night. Okay. Could be. Yeah, the QR codes definitely give you a digital download copy of a Moon Knight comic. I remember looking that up. I was like, "Oh, tricky, tricky, tricky." More that's more stitching reality and fiction. You know, they're crossing over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and two to the metaphor of him get, coming into the psychomantium to get to <laughs> to find his origin and uh, the birth metaphor of all that. These comic issues that the QR code take you to are like the origin stories of Moon Knight. But then, okay, so he's leaving. I didn't get any screenshots of this, but I'll scan ahead. He starts to have a nervous breakdown in the in the storage locker. He like says something like, his, his his breathing becomes irregular. Oh, that, this brings up something I really wanted to say. If anybody ever, if anybody watches the film, I believe I've been picking up a ghost breath pattern in the audio. And in the moments when he's having a nervous breakdown and things are getting chaotic and intense, I believe I'm hearing another breathing pattern overlaid into the audio. So it's as though you can hear the way he should breathe according to his emotional conveyance. But I think the audio is bringing forward a ghost persona subconsciously into the listener's ears. And so we are being exposed to two people's stress response simultaneously. And I think I've been hearing that uh, multiple times through the, through the series. So I'm going to have to turn it up and I'll watch out for yeah. that. So keep your, yeah. Keep your ears open on that. You'll hear him like on an intake and then a, a pattern break is happening in the breathing pattern and it's not, it's, it's highly irregular. I think they're implying multiple people breathing in the audio. So that's really something to think about, that they are summoning uh, multiple personalities in our mind on a very subtle level in the audio. That's really something to think about. 
That's a cool trick. So he runs, he's running down the, in that frame that we were just looking at, he's running down that, the storage locker hallways and he comes up, he comes up on Conchu himself. He's in the holla cube, the cube holla. He's in the hall of cubes. He's in the Kabbalah walking through the hall of records, the old dusty uh, storage. Mm. Of everybody's uh, dirty laundry, <laughs> could even be the. Uh, you could even think of that as like um, where they keep everybody's DNA, the DNA storage. Mm. Interesting way to think of it, but it looks just like the uh, Indiana Jones, where they kept kept all those artifacts from Indiana Jones. You guys remember right. that scene? Mm-hmm. Even yeah, the lighting warehousing, yeah. They really hit it with the lighting. And then as he's, he gets on the motorcycle with Layla and as they are riding on the motorcycle, the conversation keeps cutting from showing him talking and then showing her in the mirror. So he's looking, he's looking at her face in the conversation through the mirror. So continually just showing us mirror symbolism over and over again. And when they get to his apartment, (laughs) she's talking to him and she's looking at his fish and he's standing by the door. But in the tank is Mark, and Mark is telling Stephen, don't tell her anything. Don't tell her about what's going on. You're going to get her killed. And then that's when the police officers knock on the door. And, <laughs> and what are they, they find his pa- She hides, and they find his passport. There is a scene where the, uh, the male cop picks up the pyramid and is like, what is this? Where did you get this? And it's a paper. And Steven says, it's a paperweight. I got it from the paperweight shop. But again, poking fun at the fact that the audience doesn't know what the pyramid was for or so, where it came from. Where did this come from? You know? Yeah. And I think it is in, it is also encoding the weight of the paper world on our backs. If you pay mm-hmm. attention, uh, uh, it, there's one scene where they flash one of these orgone pyramids in the background, and then she starts serving him papers for the divorce that he served her, and she's ready to sign them and finalize it. So this these paper weights are getting flashed at all the scenes when the head, the weight of the of the paperwork reality that every, that so many people are living in. Uh, the weight of it is uh, weighing heavy on his soul. You could say it's like. It's transferring the stress of the scene uh, for the future when he does the weighing of the scale ceremony and that he's building up all this weight and all this tension, uh, which, again, has uh, is ritualistically um, expressed later in the in this episode in a major way. So what did you did you have anything to say about the officers? Their names are Fitzgerald and Kennedy. No, oh man, yes. Let, let me. Uh, I'll I'll forward that that little graphic for you on that because that is so huge. And a lot of people are just satisfied with the fact that it's Kennedy and Fitzgerald, and that's enough. That's enough of an Easter egg. But I'm here to tell you, folks, there are Easter eggs inside of these Easter eggs. <laughs> it is. Mm-hmm. It's remarkable. Kennedy, which means an ugly head wound in Gaelic. Hmm. Fun fact. Yeah, so th- this is 
also important because they're showing us that the officers are part of this cult. And we haven't really brought up this thematic aspect yet, but that the there's a world, literally a worldwide cult of this dark goddess. And the officers are a part of it. And officer means eunuch of the pharaoh. You got it. Officer comes from a word meaning eunuch of the pharaoh. It's so true. They've offered up their sacrifice. Off face. Yeah, um, and oddly enough, I think it was D who's in the chat now last night pointed out that if you drop the G in eugenics, you get eunuchs. G, G is the generative principle. So it's like you cut off your generative principle and you're a eunuch, which is great for yeah. eugenics. If you sterilize the population that you don't want to generate, turn them into eunuchs. Officers. That's a good point. So just a quick read on the scene. So he's got this lady. So he gets the compass in the storage locker. He runs away with the compass, meets the, his well, wife, who he didn't even know he was married. Uh, then they go back to his place and she's going through his entire reality and rummaging through anything he could be shameful of in the way he lives. You know, he even uh, says that he, he's back in touch with his mom. This is his mom's place. It's a very intimate moment. There's a lot of shame going on. She finds a book of poetry that is a French poet who I think was maybe a tranny and it may be very subtly layered into the poetry that it was uh, a man disguised as a woman uh, showing her a feminine side and became very, uh, you know, successful and applauded for that. So that poetry is uh, his feminine side. You know, they both have it memorized. It's French. It's very uh, feminine. So I see this implication that like maybe he's living a dual life. Maybe he's a closet homosexual. You know, maybe that's a, a theme that they're, it's too shameful to make it openly about the fact that he's living this soft persona, this softer aspect of himself. So there is like a closet homosexual theme being woven into his, uh, his life. And then the cops come kicking the door in and they're going to find out that he reads gay poetry and is getting a divorce <laughs> from his wife. Poetry. It's like, it's crazy the homophobia that is being fueled by the scene. Uh, and, and I just want to bring light. Check out this comment, dude. What? The song Moonlander says, I think of the song Layla with the chorus, You Got Me on My Knees. Layla. Layla. Lay, that's about a dude. Isn't is it? Yeah. Like, no, it's about, uh, it's a. Layla. But sure I mean, what do dudes do? Gay dudes do get on their knees for each other. There is Layla. that. Is the, I think she was um, George Harrison's ex wife. Oh, shit. Um, oh, wow. There's Eric, Eric Clapton was fucking around with his wife. And oh, my gosh, what, uh, guys. Layla was supposed to be about. Supposed wow. To be. And Eric Clapton just hit the, he got targeted recently yeah, in a major did. way. That there is a lot there. There is a lot there. Thank you for that. Damn. They're, do you think they're dogging Eric Clapton? Maybe. Maybe they're poking Eric Clapton? That's a trip to think about. Maybe not, though. I mean, wasn't Layla a character from all the way back when the comics began? Mm. Um, I, You know, I don't remember. I think that it's an old character. I think she's been in there, yeah. You know, well, it'll be more substantial if Eric Clapton's art or music gets reflected. 
that'll br- bring it in a little closer. I'm not to familiar home. enough to know. Yeah, I'll keep my ears on it. So, so they're they basically kick down his door and come rummaging through his house, and this is where the Third and Fourth Amendment just got completely boo-fooed. Uh, and his Fifth Amendment is uh, about to get boo-fooed also. Uh, but anyway, so. Uh, I sent you that graphic chance. This is wild. This is absolutely wild. So the two officers who pick him up, their names are Kennedy and Billy Fitzgerald. So they have the twin aspect. Again, uh, we have the black and the white, the checkerboard aspect, the male and the female, the polarity. But this is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. I'm thinking and I'm thinking and I'm thinking. When I watched it the second time, because they take him into custody, they take him in the uh, in the car, and they leave him in the car uh, while they go in to report. And he's thinking about his options and how am I going to get out of here? And while he's in the car, he goes through, he gets all stressed out again, and a voice comes out of nowhere. And it's the voice of uh, Harrow is speaking to him. And this is what, and it's just a walkie talkie in the, in the car, but he's he hearing calls him Stephen Grant of the gift shop. And he calls him Stephen Grant of the gift shop, gives him a full title, a very formal full title. And then he says, uh, then the car door opens. He's having a panic attack and he hits his head on the ground. And this is his introduction to Harrow. And his words are, Oh my God, again, he says, oh, my God, this is the second time he said, oh, my God, in the film. And this is where I realize this is an encode for voice to skull technology. So I look at the police officer's name all over again. I look at Kennedy as a K and I look at Billy up above. Uh, can you roll up a little? The Billy Fitzgerald, the B and the F. That's a B and an F. This is pretty nuts. And I'm really stretching the sigil magic here, but I think it's a fit. F is a vav in Hebrew. So you got a vav two, a two vav up in Billy Fitzgerald. And Kennedy is a K. You reconfigure those initials and you get V2K, voice to skull technology. Then you look up voice to skull technology in the imagery, and this is the cappy. This is the silver cap that is used in voice to skull technology. This is the capping. And look how it looks just like uh, Moon Knight's costume. It's got the bird skull shape to the voice to skull helmet. And so this is just a few graphics of what voice just to skull. Just the fact that he's hearing another voice, a disembodied voice in his head the whole time. It's yes. not a stretch to bring in V2K, voice to skull V2K. Definitely not. Yes. And, and I'll just riff on this real quick because it is, it's very, it's very important. This reinforces the myth of uh, the Maltese Knights, MK. The Maltese Knights had a chamber where an initiate would kneel in a very specific location where somebody could speak in a removed chamber far away and their voice would echo into the initiate's skull chamber the the crystal skull that is our cranium or cranial cavity and they would hear the voice with no echo and the voice would compel them to take on a mission from god basically ruin a mission from god that's where this comes from and the fact that the that v2k the two police left him in an exact location where he couldn't move left to right where he was targeted 
for that voice to hit him at just the right spot. And then he falls out and hits his head on the ground. And, uh, you know, we have that traumatic learning moment. And he says, oh, he hits his head on the ground. And Kennedy means a head wound. Head wound. He doesn't really get wounded, but he does face plant twice in this episode. So they're they're banging his head and they're banging it into our head. The message of this is voice to skull. And you've been you've been warned. Uh, Yeah. And then another aspect of that is. While he's in the car, he sees some people playing soccer outside. They're balling. (laughs) They're ballers. And the ball hits the window. And that also startles him. That's kind of like banging into his head because his head was right up against the window. And then she shows again, the screenshots are darker than they should be, but this you is can't so, see very well, but the wrist, she has the Amit cult scales with the crock head. So yeah. there's that. And we're finding out at this point that Harrow's cult spans quite vast reaches. And he has an entire like little village here right. in the middle of, of London. Can and they go on a walk through the village. Oh, you go ahead. It's like, can you go back on that soccer ball? I just got to point it out. I can't miss it. We got the Saturnian uh, hexagon on the football. Well, she's, of course. She's got three fingers showing. That's a yod. There's a yod on the football. There's a, a three by three magical square of Saturn. Yod and yod. And all very highly Saturnian. I just had to point that out. It's, uh, you know, these these trigger me too. They trigger Mark to see that scale, but it triggers me to see the Saturnian symbology and be like, ah, it's so obvious. <laughs> yeah. And so they're walking through this village and this is a really important like aspect of the whole minority report thing with Amit. But this is honestly, this is where my notes really begin up to this point. I didn't have a lot of yeah. notes written <laughs> and this point from this point forward, I have plenty because this is where, you know, the supervillain gives his whole monologue of his evil plan, right? Got to have that. So, Harrow, we're walking through this village and he's talking about how this used to be a neighborhood filled with crime. And now it's flourishing and they've got gardens and they're growing tomatoes. As they're walking, uh, Stephen goes, goat. He just exclaims, yeah. goat. And I there's a goat too. right here. And you hear it make its bleeding sound. And uh, there's a lot of important dialogue here that Harrow says. But one of the things he says is people don't want good news. They want to cling to fear and pain. So that's the whole idea of the scapegoat. The scapegoat is the reason why there's a good reason to cling to fear and pain. You know, the news, people don't want good news. Well, the news gives you all the scapegoats in the world to pin your fear and pain on and say, that's why, as opposed to facing it within and overcoming it and realizing that anything in the world has no effect on you. You are holding that energy within yourself and you're identifying it with the outside world and blaming that. But really the outside world is just, it is what it is. (laughs) If that makes sense. We kind of talked about this with SB last night on vibrant. Yeah. So there's that aspect of it. There's the goat of it all. They, they, he also, right before that, he says, people don't even lock their doors anymore. And that's, and then a goat, a free range goat. People don't lock their doors. They, we're not pinned in. And then you hear, the goat comes in. So it's got definitely the herd, the herd aspect. We and heard then, the herd animal in the background. 
this is one of the most important lines, I think, in the whole thing as a wink nudge moment where he talks to the soccer ball playing gal and she speaks to him in Mandarin in Chinese and he speaks back to her and Steven's like, you guys speak Chinese? And Harrow says, we each aspire to learn three languages. We share our knowledge with each other. So right there, he's re- he's revealing that the cult that this is all symbolic of, the real world cult, the actual black nobility, the actual priesthood of the Illies, you could call them. They are working with three languages. It's Greek, Hebrew, Latin. I mean, there's other languages too, but <laughs> that's the idea is that back in the day, the priest class, they had all three of those dictionaries on their scribe desk. So he's giving you, this is direct, <laughs> direct disclosure of the fact that the cult is working through multiple languages at once. And they do that to share their knowledge with each other, that these languages have puns that are the same within each other. And there's yeah. a lot to that. There's a lot to that line. Yeah, have we, The phonetic Kabbalah, you could call it. Mm-hmm. Have we uh, mentioned what Harrow's name means? Um, it means pillage or plunder. Long harrowed by the oppressor's hand was a quote from Sir Walter Scott. Damn, that's that's powerful. It's got a hand in it. I think we just found the hidden hand of Harrow here in that well, quote. I was thinking about how Harrow, if you drop the H, a lot of languages, if there's an H in there before a vowel, it's silent anyway. It's the arrow. It's the toxo. Right. Mm. Very Artemis. Artemis. His name is okay. <laughs> We're about to be there anyway, so I'm just gonna get there. I'm just gonna take us there. Yeah. So they uh they walk skip ahead here. Uh they walk ahead to the scene where he's got his little cult chamber and they're all having dinner together, and Harrow says Harrow starts talking about Amit versus Kansu. He reveals that he was Kansu's previous avatar. And that the mod, the Kansu model is retribution and it comes too late, he says. And you need Amit digs up evil at the root and kill, kills judges. She casts her judgment. That's his exact words before any harm is done. So this is like, to me, the crux of the whole episode. And one of the main thematic important things of the whole series is that Kansu represents the old medical model of remedy after injury and Amit is prescription pre prescribe right program prescribe same words they mean the same thing and that this is exactly what the medical system the medical mafia the cult of the med medoy the medics is changing their model to right now as we speak and have been in transition for a while oh well even though you're not sick you still need to get to cowpoke we need to give it to you oh, before man. you get sick. And so that ties into why I'm saying his name Harrow is like Arrow, which is like Toxo, because we're talking about an injection. We're talking about a a, a dart, a poison dart, an arrow. Yeah. Toxo. Toxo is Greek for for a bow, just so that that's clear to anybody. Yeah. And, on, and so this is predictive programming, predict, prescribe, program, all the same word. Right. 
It's also the symbol for a cardinal. The cardinal sign is an arrow. A cardinal cross is an arrow pointing up. And he shows absolutely no indication of changing his mind anytime soon. He's very determined uh, on his path. And on, just in case it's not fully clear <laughs> that this symbolism is correct about the cowpokes, he literally says, sometimes the cure is a little taste of the disease. That is mm-hmm. ex- what else? What else are the? What else is a cowpoke than that? It's a little taste of a disease. Oh, what is actually? What is it that they're putting in there? That's a whole other conversation. But That's right, and then he says sometimes the difference between medicine and poison is just dosage, and that yeah. is that is really far out. He's walking that fine line for, for sure. He's trampling the fine line. <laughs> <laughs> There's no fine line at all. Well, right, it's not left. And this is where our character starts to grow a spine. Well, hold on. Let's back up because this is a really good comment. I am Aqua Stone Throne says all this talk about the cowpoke, but not the nose swipe. We did touch on the nose swipe a little bit, but the nose swipe is the prescribing because the nose swipe is the same as when Harrow holds somebody by the wrist and his weird tattoo lights up and then he decides whether or not they're going to live or die. That's the the nose swipe. The pointing of the temperature gun in someone's forehead, all of this is the prediction of the what is coming later in the program, which is that we're holding this gun to your head to check your temperature. But, you know, and then we could call it the Pharaoh's crocodile test, PCR, <laughs> Pharaoh's crocodile test. <laughs> yeah, good one, Aquastone, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and we did talk about uh, the embalming ritual of Anubis is scraping out the brains through the nose. Well, there's that. And then there's also like, wasn't there some, this went around during the time when cooties was flaring up or whatever, whatever was going on. And they talked about how that whole nose swab was breaking through the blood brain barrier in some way. And it was actually an old ritual of the claim of the new kingdom, Egypt to do something to break their slaves Yep. Because if that uh, that that penetration occurs, that it has some kind of actual physiological change effect on the being. Right. And now they stored all those people's DNA. You know, it's crazy. It was a harvest. It was a total harvest. People are so spiritually uh, oblivious. It's concerning. Uh, but uh, have you talked about the lentils yet? Are we on the lentils? Not yet. Well, this conversation happens while he's feeding him lentils and oh my God, this is too much to go into, but (laughs) (laughs) Harrow says he's a vegan and he feeds Steven his vegan soup that he, he made himself or whatever. And Steven is a vegan. And I, I'm going to talk about this with David Whitehead a little bit tomorrow, maybe, but I was catching up on his looking into the whole snake venom hypothesis, which Man, I never, I don't want it to be true, but I can't it, stop looking at it because like, it fits everything we do. It fits, it checks all the boxes. And it one of the things everything that we do, I, I can't explain this well because I just, I just heard it today and I need to look into it more and I don't have it like internalized the data, but basically the, a guy that Whitehead had on his podcast recently was talking about how, and he, he himself being an ex vegan was talking about how the, uh, something to do with the metabolizing of these venom peptides 
is enhanced by two factors, like not like um, eating meat somehow is helpful for dealing with it. But uh, I believe I could be getting this totally wrong, but also that the artificial lab grown meats are working on the same in the same vector as the way that these venoms are grown bacterially. So as I understood it, that it, it's not so much that it's actually venom from a snake in every case, but that they figured out a way to piggyback venom onto proteins that are grown in bacterias and cause the bacteria to create the venom itself more or less, or the toxin itself. So all that is a way of saying that there's possible evidence that the UN's push to get everybody meatless and Bill Gates is pushed to get everyone meatless and his, you know, and the lab grown meats thing is very connected directly to whatever biological warfare is being done in the world right now. That is not to, for me to say that you should or shouldn't be a vegan. I'm not on, I'm not making any more moral statements one way or the other, but there is on an agenda level, this is coming through in the programming on the news and on the fiction or well, I guess they're the same thing, right? Yeah. So the fact that Harrow is a vegan, <laughs> it's uh, it's important to this whole thing. So there's that. And then, so the talk about the lentils and then we'll get into more of uh, the next part of this conversation. So the, the lentils just, just drop in, the idea of the these two characters in oppositional relationship uh, sharing a bowl of lentils is, is immediately biblical, uh, and it goes back to uh, the story of Jacob and Esau, and how uh, Jacob was favored by his father, was out in the field hunting, running around, doing hard man work, and wait, did I mess that up? I messed that up. Rewind. Esau was favored by his father, sent out to do the work and the hunting and the man work. Jacob was favored by the mother and was kept indoors, learned the ways of the kitchen, so to say. Um, there is some very interesting dynamics in that private and the public, you know, uh, Esau's in the public, Jacob's in the private. That's very, very pivotal to the, to the moral of the story. Uh, Esau comes in, he's tired, he's exhausted. And his brother Jacob is plotting and scheming always, got something up his sleeve. And he's like, yo, man, you can have some of these lentils. You won't pass out. I've been cooking them all day. But in exchange, you got to give me the birthright. you got to give me the first the first uh, greater portion of the inheritance. He's like, yeah, man, whatever. I'm about to pass out. Give me some lentils. And he hooks them up. It's good lentils. But he sold his inheritance for a porridge, for a bowl of soup, so to say. And that's quite profound because here these two are talking about the passing of a mantle. One is inheriting the powers that the other used to embody. And in a moment, uh, maybe five or ten minutes uh, after this action series, Harrow is going to again reinforce the uh, fulfillment of that biblical story because he uh, comes upon an old man who has picked up the scarab and he seduces the inheritance, the birthright, the scarab. He seduces it from the old man, and he touches his hands, literally. This is the moment where Jacob dresses himself up in uh, in uh, skins and steals the inheritance from their father, from their grandfather. And so uh, 
it is just quite profound that we just had a bowl of soup, a bowl of lentils metaphor, a passing of the inheritance. And here in about 10 minutes, Harrow is about to see an old man into the grave and steal the birthright of Esau again in the scene that involves the scarab, which is always hand in hand with the wifey. Wifey and the scarab are hand in hand, and that is by design. All right. Sorry, guys. No, dude, I love this. I, I didn't see that. I was, I was, when we were talking in our, in our little chats, I saw, I was seeing different things that we were talking about pointing to this, these kinds of things. I didn't catch this. I love how your brain works, dude. <laughs> I've got something to add on lentils. I forgot that I had a note on that. If you remember in the first episode, we talked about the symbolism of his goldfish. Goldfish representing luck, prosperity, wealth. Etymology of Stephen with a V actually means similar thing, like good fortune, luck, wealth. And in uh, <laughs> Hebrew symbolism, because I was like, why the lentils? And I looked that up. In symbolism, lentils represent fortune, luck, and prosperity. So that does definitely the prosperity thing does represent the inheritance idea you're talking about. But so yeah. this is a carrying over theme. Because Stephen is the one talking to Harrow here, and he receives the lentils, and he's the one who's been allowed to have the body for all this time. And he is, you know, he's the more feminized one in a way, even though uh, Mark is kind of more private in the terms of how their dynamic has become in the sense of him being the, but he's also, Mark is the masculine one, which the masculine is the public side. So I guess that maybe that flips. You know, I'm, I'm seeing something totally new. The nationality of his personas representing the tripartite crown of the birth certificate. The military is American. That's the Pentagon. The financial is the city of London. That's his English accent soft boy persona. And the third persona we haven't even gotten into is oh, the assassin no. behind the scenes we haven't even talked about. That's the third party. That's don't call, don't summon the Inquisition. <laughs> it, it goes it goes deep on that third component, and it's kept a secret for a reason. So I think that's something we should maybe fill in a little more as we go forward with this. Is that um, is help me out with the names? Is it Mark is American? Yes, Mark's the Mark's- American one. And Stephen, and they they uh, make that point several times throughout this. Stephen with a V, when in the the uh, fight scene later on, when he chooses his white suit and the white gloves, uh-huh. white gloves, right? Um, he he and he he figures out his dance moves, and his, he's actually starting to fight, right? And he says, "Stephen like a V." Stephen with a V, That's like right. a butterfly sting like a bee, right? Hold that. We're going to get to that. Okay, sorry. No, no, I, no. I got too far. Sorry. But no, no, I just want to this in order. I want you to talk more, though. Stop. <laughs> I don't want you to stop talking. I just want to make sure that we <laughs> get it this in order. This is great. This is great. I love that we're, like, discovering this on the fly, you know? So another thing to talk about in the conversation with Hera while they're eating lentils is that he refers to the future. Oh man, this is bad stuff. Okay, Stephen's like, so y'all, you're all into like killing children, then? Oh because right. What the fuck is in the lentils now? 
<laughs> he says you're into killing children then because he's talking to Harrow about the fact that they're that Ahmet wants to prescribe her justice. And he's like, well, so you'd you would kill a child who's going to do possibly something they might do in 30 years. You'd kill an innocent. Yeah. And Harrow's like, yeah, I would. Yeah, that's how we're That's how we roll. We would kill the kids. And, but he's uh, vegan. But he's, he's vegan. He's a vegan. <laughs> 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 kind of like the vegans that are like, they want to kill somebody for being an animal flesh eater. So there's that. So this ties into just generally what we've been told about goddess cults of the past who were, who did have a child sacrifice dynamic to them in the sense that the goddess was seen as the origin of the, the life in the first place. And so she owned it. Is hers to create or destroy by right. And then there's the fact that Hera was actually Kansu's avatar before. So back to the idea of the old system and the new system. He was literally part of the old system and now he's part of the new. <laughs> he was an old doc and now he's with the new croc. So there's that. And then I thought, well, we're talking about Kansu. I know it's Kanshu in the Marvel, but... It's interesting that Kansu or Kanshu is going after them after the fact. He's going after a, an evildoer after they've done it. So he's their consequence. He's Kansu with consequence. And <clears throat> I'll get into awesome. another interesting thing about the name Amit that they, they do here. But first, let's say that uh, Harrow brings up that, yeah, we would kill children because it's like, you know, sometimes you, you have a diseased limb and you just got to cut it off and it makes everything better. A, a cutting amputation. He says the word amputation. So we're talking about child sacrifice and we're talking about amputation. Are we talking and we're talking about a goddess cult. Are we talking about eunuch eugenics cutting situation here? I think so. I think that we have a, I think we're checking all the boxes here as our checkerboard floor is a part of this scene too. It's not black and white, but there are many floors in this entire episode where the floor may not be black and white, but the tiles are still in perfect squares in a checkerboard pattern. So there's that. And then Layla shows up. She's got the scarab. She's like, Mark, summon the suit, summon the suit. And Steven's like, what suit, what suit? There may be something to talk about there, but to weave it into the name Amit, that I thought it was interesting. I was like, what does Amit could be spelled A-M-E-T. What starts with A-M-E-T? Amethyst, maybe. Hmm. I, th- I was thinking Amethyst. And when Harrow uses his staff or his cane, his two-ball cane, to uh, summon another jackal monster, look at this color of the magical energy coming out of it. Firstly, it remind- the first thing it reminded me of was the whole T-Mobile 5G electric pinky color. So there's yeah. that, which is definitely part of the whole panopticon of minority report style surveillance that would be crucial to the entire idea of a of a, <laughs> a prescription of justice before the crime is committed. But then this is also very like an amethyst type color. So Amit and amethyst, I don't know what may be important or relevant there, but amethyst is definitely like a crown chakra type crystal. So this color representing the most high of the yeah. color spectrum. And Gordy's got amethyst right there. Yeah. I have yeah. a big piece that didn't bring in here, but yeah, there's a violet flame here. Very much yeah. so. It's uh, kind of magenta-y. It's a, it's a weird color. It, it reminds me of that toxic, that uh, electric neon 
um, disease green that the media likes to use when they're freaking you out about whatever the next pandemic is and they've done it all throughout history uh i i know what it reminds me of so when you do a culture when you're doing a culture of cells or or, um biopsies or something you put a dye on your your culture when you're when you do um when you're looking at something under under a, a uh microscope you put a dye into the the sample so that you can see the differences in the cells and the cellular structure. That's what that color looks like. You, it's a purple dye. And, you know, two years ago when, when uh, Corona started, um, Lindsay was doing a series on colors and how purple was like the big signal and all of the uh, Super Bowls and all the bullshit that was going mm-hmm. on that didn't happen or whatever, they're signaling it was purple all over the place. I think they're, they're, this may be a mimetic device that they're using. Yeah. They showed this to you over and over and over again, the same color, when, right. when the Rona was starting up in popular culture. You got it. I, th- I think it's a, a hail to the royal to the royals for sure. And here, like you were saying, Chance, it's got the cubalistic. It's a cube mm-hmm. sinking in through the earth here. And we're about to have the Anubis. We're about to have another jackal, which we've already pointed out. Anubis is Saturn. This is that uh, Saturnian cube uh, spell. Eileen Day McCusick talks about something that she calls purple washing, which is prevalent in New Agers in general or spiritual people or I guess cults like this, which is what she calls it when you do spiritual bypassing. When you're like, oh, you know, you know, you jump over the lessons and try to go straight to it, to being like all holy and perfect and purple and royal (laughs) purple washing, she calls it. So it's the idea of not really working on your roots, cutting, cutting off the roots to go straight up to the purple. And what does Harrow say? Sometimes you have to cut the disease out at the root. So this is also very symbolic of a lot of the uh, Ascension cults in the world that would actually lead you to believe that the body is unimportant. The body is the evil thing. You need to just get up into the higher chakras and skip all the the lower stuff and be untethered, ungrounded and being ungrounded is a huge thematic aspect of this show, especially back in the previous episode when we talked about all the symbolism of the shoe, shoe, (laughs) S-H-U, you cutting you off from the, from the actual ground, the cutting off your connection between your soul and the earth and Shu as the Egyptian God. And we won't recap all that, but that was a huge important thing. So I think the purple washing idea too could apply here as Eileen calls it. Mm-hmm. Nice. It's kind of interesting how they're like taking new age, beautiful new age concepts and dressing them up in as a villain. You know, he's a vegan. Uh, he, uh, you know, he's waving his magical state. He cares about uh, history. Uh, he cares about, you know, he's a religious enthusiast. Uh, but they're like, they just tip him over the over the ledge. And the next thing you know, he's a psychopath. You know, David Koresh status, so to say. Very silly details to vilify somebody with. Where are we in the story 
No. So he's uh, running away from Harrow's monster now, and she's telling him to pull up a suit. Yeah, and they uh, <laughs> they flee into a side room, and he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna die in a supervillain's man cave because he doesn't know how to summon the suit." Right. And, and the monster of- break, breaks through the door and uh, throws him out the window. And the, the room is full of dead bodies. It's a room full of cadavers, isn't it? I think that actually, yeah, wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Good point. Yes. And he is, he just ate the lentil soup, right? He accepted the offer at first. He took in the offering. And when she t- tells him to pull the suit forward, he can't perform. The, again, and I, this is another scene where I think we have double breathing going on in the audio where he's trying to pull his other self forward and he can't do it. it, it, it it's not going to happen. Um, and so he can't summon his powers. Uh, and then the, the jackal comes in and busts him out the window and he goes falling down. And then he just says, suit, suit. And magically makes, sticks the landing and survives, so to say. But one thing I just want to put suit out and soup. If you were to say it out loud, oh shit, you'd like be mouthing the same thing. Damn, that is an interesting tie-in. This is like okay. So I've been getting into how you can swap certain consonants with each other. Aspirate sounds can replace from one language to another. And what I'm really trying to get my brain to think about lately is how if you were to read somebody's lips, how certain words would actually look identical, and how certain vowel sounds have the same like. Maybe hitting the top of your roof of your mouth with one um, consonant and another consonant the same way or whatever the tongue is doing in the mouth for certain consonants is actually pretty close to the same thing. Yes. And that also might represent a a way of encoding. Yes. There's a whole language around describing the anatomy of the mouth as it makes different sounds. Uh, I studied it in college and it is fascinating how many words you can use to describe the sound of B. It's like a paragraph of information, a bilabial breathless stop. It's just absolutely amazing. That, uh, but yeah, there, there's definitely something there. But I want to put this out in the, in the thought stream. They're telling him to summon the suit. Right now, the entire world just got... A bunch of injection and injections, experiments, and liability thrown into the uh, into the wind experimentally. Are we being told to summon the class action lawsuit? The inevitability mm. that the class action lawsuit has been has been basically put out there for anybody who wants to get on board, and that makes me think of the communal aspect of that lentil soup. And summoning the suit and the soup and everybody should get on board and we need to get a class action lawsuit together uh, so we can survive the fall. Just a thought. Well, that is interesting. Um, When he summons the suit, that's when he gets the powers, right? And it's in that that life or death situation where he doesn't have a choice. When he he jumps, he's thrown out a window. Like a bird out of a nest. Right, exactly. Like somebody, like a bird fledging. And Conchu, he's thrown out of a window, and it's Conchu's voice that's 
tells him to, to summon the suit. It's not Mark. It's Conchie's voice that tells Mark to, or Stephen to summon his suit. Now, when he, he gets his suit, it's different than our standard Moonlight Night suit. And this is something that was actually um, brought up. This was new in uh, Lunatic. The, this series, where this came from, this is the first time we've seen this suit of Moon Knight in the comic too. Um, was it's uh, he's just this like a like a London businessman kind of suit. It's a it's a tie and coat. It's not a a superhero. It's suit. a monkey suit. Yeah, yeah. It's your. It's basically slave clothes. Slave clothes, right? Because that's slave where suit. Stephen's comfortable. I remember that I grabbed slavery. this just because the um, the croc nice on his catch. head gives mm. him this horns effect. I thought was interesting. Yeah, interesting. But I'll yeah, yeah I'll zoom forward till where we see him in his new suit uh, because Stephen has a different suit than Mark, and again, very fitting thematically to the idea of uh, the differences between Mark and Stephen being. Masculine, feminine, public, private, uh, slave, free man, that type of uh, deal. American, British, which is not more and more important now that I'm thinking about it, man. That tripartite crown. I'm loving that theory. That's going to blow up at the end, I think. <laughs> of this episode? Uh, well, maybe, no, the end of them all. When we reveal the... That there's uh, a third persona. Spoiler there's, alert, there's a third one in there. There's a tertium quid. There's a third something going on, y'all. Yeah, so he he, uh, gets his suit on, and then he fights the invisible. It's invisible to everything else, but he fights the jackal monster. No one else can see it but him. So there's a lot of this fight scene where I'm trying to find a good image where it portrays it. But yeah, here we go. You know, it's between them right there, but they can't see it. So it's invisible. So this fits into the whole idea of fighting against the fictional, you know, the fictional realm, <laughs> fighting the imaginary monster. I've seen forces. Well, and that the actual, that the, uh, the battle at hand that humanity is facing is literally against artificiality and fiction and totally that which does not exist, trying to become manifest in the world of existence. And interestingly, uh, when Gordy, like you said, what does he say whenever he's about to finally, Stephen's about to finally actually fight and throw a punch? He says, Stephen with a V, float like a butterfly, stinging like a bee. It's- yeah, and Jenny B pointed out to me that that's actually not the full quote from Muhammad Ali. Right. What is the, the full quote? Let me make sure I have it here. Hold on a second. I believe it is uh, the hands can't touch what the eyes can't see. So they're implying that full quote, but they're not giving you the full quote. But yeah, the hands can't hit what the eyes can't see. That is implied in what Stephen with a V says. And that's perfect because we're talking about, you know, we're talking about an invisible monster. I think that is pretty cool. That is really cool. Good one, Jenny. Yeah. So that means we become the invisible to them. Right. 
You know what's kind of really- well when you're not on their when you're not in their system when you're not on their paper C their papacy system slave registry mm-hmm. <laughs> you know when you're not registered with the king when you don't go through that whole process of setting up your corporate fictional identity this mm-hmm. is true in you know like covens and and uh, cults that unfortunately will do things like have children just for the sake of using them in ritual practices. No, those kids don't exist. They can't be seen by the state because they're not born in a hospital and they don't have all that paperwork. So very much so that the, you know, the iron fist of the oppressor also can't hit what it can't see. Yeah. One, just one really interesting point on that quote with Muhammad Ali is that the God Muhammad, you cannot see. It is a faceless God. Mm. And that is just an interesting little meta implication of having Muhammad Ali talking about can't fight what you can't see something going on there. Well, yeah, he's not exactly a God, right? He's a, they call him prophet, but it's exactly that. You aren't allowed to depict him as an image. So you can't fight him. (laughs) Very interesting point there. Since we did bring up the Ali of it. So uh, then Stephen is still getting his ass kicked a little bit. And so he gives the body over to Mark. Right. And this is him finally giving control to Mark for real. And uh, Mark leads the monster away on an exciting chase scene. And let's back it up here. Okay, here we go. He stabs it. He does like a wrestling move and suplex slams it, jumping off of a roof onto a needle. Oh, yeah. Of all things. So let me make sure get a better image of that. But I mean, if that's not, (laughs) if this isn't symbolic of uh, so many things, but oh my gosh, there's a cathedral right there, right? And so this looks like the, you know, this is the consequential justice. This is you got sick and we gave you a shot afterwards instead of a shot before this is remedy after the fact, but it's still definitely implying the whole medical aspect of the, the symbolism because he cured his problem with the needle. (laughs) Right. And he did it by using the, the strategy of timing is everything. The way that he times the jump off the building to catch the wolf, to land it on this pyramid is very climactic. It's incredibly uh, strategic and climactic. And that is the, uh, the old medical system. Timing is everything. Uh, it is a very uh, nuanced uh, approach to healing. But I just, I have to point out that this is the culminating ritual of all of the accumulated weight of all the paper weights of all the situations up until this point in his story, he has accumulated all this stress. And right now he's uh, ritualistically vanquishing uh, that stored up frustration of his entire life. So I see this scene as a huge alchemical ritual where he is slaying all of the stress that has been uh, stacking up under his paperweights, his divorce papers, his loss of his job, his loss of his identity, all these things have been stacked up. And now he's taking them 
on physically and vanquishing that beast in a major way. And he harvests the energy. He looshes the wolf in the end and he extracts his golden sickle, his golden weapon. He pulls that forward from the ashes of this wolf. And I think we might, this is really obscure and weird and wild to say, but we might be looking at the alchemical process of get, of getting gold out of the ashes. We might need Benjamin Balderson here on this, but there is something to say about uh, burning something to ash and still getting the treasure uh, from that reduction process. Also worth pointing out that this is, um, Teresa asked if that's a waxing or waning moon. The, wo- the moon goes from the right to the left. So it is a waxing moon, which means his power is growing. In the comics, he actually was strengthened or weakened by the phase of the moon. So it also makes sense that if right before this, it was a new moon, that he didn't really have the power and the suit that much yet. You know, he was weakened by yes. that. And that's in the comics. It's not really stated as such in the show. But that is a theme from the comics. So from this point forward, the moon is going to be getting more full whenever you see it in the background. And Gabe, you just texted me an important image that I'm going to pull up. This is a really good point. Um, There's a couple of other places where buses drive by and they have messages on them. And we just didn't stop for that. You can't stop for every bus. (laughs) Can't get off at every bus stop. That's right. So both means hidden or to look for. Buscar, there are always hidden things when you see the bus. It also means look out for the bus. Don't get fucking hit by the bus. <laughs> Buscar. Uh, yeah, there's two levels. It's a double-decker. Double-decker. It's got the, it's the London meaning. thing. It's layered. There are layered meanings. It's stacked with meaning, right? Huh. And written along the side, it says, reuniting you with your better half. This is crazy placenta magic. The twinning aspect of placenta magic is absolutely in play in a major way. Um, oh, there's so much going on. But uh, this is the theme of the Marvel Cinematic Universe right now is that people went out, were, were gone in the blip. And now they're reuniting each other. They've come back together and found their long lost loved, loved ones. Uh, our character, our main character, he wasn't in the blip. He was here the whole time. I think I, I learned that. Um, but he is reuniting with his better half because here in a second, he's going to hand off the controls to his other ego. So there is a reuniting going on with that. On the side of the bus is a salt symbol. It's a circle with a line through it. Found that very interesting because that's an alchemical symbol. And we're about to see that alchemical process with the werewolf, the burning away of, of the salts. Or no, the burning away of the carbon in the uh, the harvesting of the salt that remains. So what you're talking about, the whole GRC Global Repatriation Council, this has come up in previous Marvel decodes, of course, because the blip is such a big deal. This show actually doesn't make a big deal of the blip. It's gone enough time has passed that life has gotten back normal or whatever. But really weird logo here. <laughs> really weird. Ep- reminds me of Epcot type of thing. And also kind of like a waxing moon in a, in a sense. So odd, odd choice symbolically. There's probably more to that. Uh, we're getting there though, guys, we're getting there. I think we can pull this bus into the, the station by three hours. <laughs> I get, be- I, 
one thing I wanted to point out on that that pyramid that he killed the wolf on the werewolf. I guess that's his second werewolf. He's he's killed two. I guess no. Yes, right? the one in the previous yeah. episode as well. Okay, so I guess I misspoke earlier. This is his second time. But just something that I noticed is uh, at this point he has that inter- that conflict with his inner self. His inner self is like, okay, now give me the body back, and he's like, sorry, bro, you're stuck in mirror world. And the church bells start to ring in that scene. And, uh, and he's and, standing on a circle with a checkerboard pattern. Let's point that out. Totally ritualized. And this is where Mark is now going to bogart the controls and not let Stephen back in. At the moment when the bells start to ring uh, and he starts kicking this mirror to seal the contract, the uh, timing on the film, there's nine minutes and three seconds left at the last bell. Also... It's a 93. That is nice. Mm. Nice decode. Uh, This isn't the best screenshot of it, but there is over here a pillar and over here a pillar. And then the pyramid with the mirrors on it. The mirror amid. (laughs) So this is two pillar symbolism coming back. Just wanted to point that out. And then the broken mirror that Steven's trapped within. So MK Ultra. (laughs) So MK Ultra. His altar is now in the mirror world. Also, I found out about something just in case we weren't sure about Disney, let me find it. There's now a mobile game that Disney is developing called Mirrorverse. Okay, before you get on to Mirrorverse, sure. I just want to point out while we're still in that that scene and we still have it, that it's it's identical. What we're looking at, and they, it is a pyramid, but it's also the compass. When you see the the uh, pyramid. Or when you see the mirrors, when he shows the mirrors, mm-hmm. those those arms that are kind of making up the frame of the of the pyramid of the between the the mirrors, it, that's that's definitely a compass. Like it, you can see it; it's a taper. Yeah. So this is identical to a um, Freemason tracing board. If you guys know what that is, like this is it. Yeah. This is a Freemasonic uh, ceremony, what we're looking at right here. Yeah. Yeah. And really, this entire series might be some kind of a ritual for this actor, Oscar Isaac. And we'll have to see where he goes in Hollywood from here or wherever Hollywood lands. I guess it's in Georgia now. But the fact is that this happens, that actors are put into these ritualized whenever the symbolism is this heavy <laughs> into yeah. the, the initiation symbolism, it's probably symbolic of actually something that the, uh, the actor who's part of this priesthood is going through. I mean, we already pointed out that Ethan Hawke who plays Harrow supposedly came up with the entire opening scene that is so full of symbolic uh, sinistry, <laughs> sinister syncretism. So there's that. How old is Isaac? Astro Aries asked. I'm not sure how old he is. We can look that up. Forty three. Yeah, we saw that earlier. Oh which yeah, ma- which matches his his locker number. Which is funny because they're trying to pull him off as someone who's 35. <laughs> you know, because he's born in 87. That's two years older oh. than me. His passport says 87. So nice. Anyway, Disney Mirrorverse, I don't have a lot to say about this because I haven't looked into it too much, but other than 
there is a multiverse mirror verse thing that Disney's doing where they're putting together all the characters from all their different properties into, I don't know if it'll be like a sort of super smash brothers type thing where all the characters come into one joined multiverse or what, but it says unlock unique quests and battle fractured enemies to obtain powerful rewards and restore mirror verse worlds that have been corrupted by fractured magic. So, Oh my God, that's crazy, man. They're just like forcing homogenization of all things. That's nuts. That's crazy. They're doing that. They are. Yeah. Um, so here's another fractured mirror. So we are, well, there's a little bit that happens here. Um, Khonshu and (laughs) well, first Mark talks to Steven while he's in the broken glass world. And he says the inside is horrible. So, you know, they're like kind of giving you this program of the, the inner world is horrible. You don't want to be in there. You don't, you'll be, you'll get trapped in there or whatever. Something else, some gin will come possess your body while you're exploring inner space. Who knows? And uh, Steven smashes the glass actually gets pissed off because Steven says he's not going to give him any peace. He's going to keep chattering away and bother him. So then Khonshu shows up and I thought this was interesting because it happens at 44, 44, 44 minutes, 44 seconds. Khonshu says, you think you own this body? Wow. Closing the doors. Yeah. (laughs) So we find out that Khonshu thinks he owns Mark and that they have some sort of a deal with each other Mm -hmm. and that Mark wants to fulfill the agreement that he has with Kansu Kanshu because he is afraid that Kanshu wants to possess Layla uh next instead of him. If he gives up the can the avatarship, then Layla will be the next one possessed. Right. So the, the whole he realizes is, he realized just before that, what you're talking about, uh-huh. he realizes he's lost the compass. He doesn't have the scarab anymore. Right. So, right. It, it's in all the broken glass and some uh, I don't yeah. know, some passerby picks it no, up. No, no, no. Steven, okay. Steven drops it because Layla gives it to Steven. Steven puts it in his coat pocket. Steven summons the suit. And then when he's going to sting like a butterfly or sting like a bee, whatever, float like a butterfly, he takes off his jacket and rolls oh, up his sleeves. Right. Oh, right. And like an idiot, the uh, scarab is in, or the compass is in his jacket pocket. And you take Whoa, the jacket off. Wait a second. Wait a second. Okay. So that whenever so he wild. changes back to the Mark version of the suit, uh, the jacket that he was wearing, I imagine just sort of like dematerializes or something. And then the scarab is just laying on the ground, I would think is what's implied. Guys, this is amazing. That means that the moment of his manhood, the moment when he's like, I've had enough, and he takes off the suit and he calls out his own name. He's like, I'm fucking Steven with the V, victory, bitch, let's go. And he fucking puts the dukes up and everybody's inspired. In that moment, there was a a magic trick, a sleight of hand, where (laughs) the scarab disappears. And even the coat vanishes. Even the coat disappears. And he is denying his own birthright. He's giving up when he takes the coat off to, so he can fight. Uh, he is denying his own uh, heirloom, the family heirloom. That's great catch, guys. I'm glad we pointed the moment that the scarab ended up on the ground out. That is crucial. 
That's crucial. so. Thank you for this comment, Jenny. That the location where this was happening is All Hallows by the Tower Church. So yeah. that's an interesting uh, name. And so I was like, okay, what will I find out if I just type that into Google? And that, uh, in a quick little look, Hollow. They call it the other name for it, sometimes known as All Hallows Barking. Barking, yo. What wow. the hell? Werewolves are and you know what? Another thing I didn't bring up is when so Steven much. is talking to JB, <laughs> another JB, thanks, Jenny B, the uh, security guard. Uh-huh. And he's like, there's like this crazy Area 51 dog monster thing. And JB brings up, oh, you mean like some hounds of the Baskerville thing? And so this is not even part of our weave at this point, but it is something we could look into, which is what is up with all the black dogs you know like the way that we have sasquatch here in england they have like big black dogs that people see that are like spirit hounds black dog things so i don't know if hounds of the baskervilles has anything to do with that but it is a sherlock holmes story so there's probably all kinds of a weave just to think about hounds of the hound of the baskervilles but we'll not be going there but the the dog (laughs) the dogs and the the gin thing is definitely something up with that that is cool thanks jen thank you thank you uh oh, cool all hallows barking that is weird so chance can you pull up that uh the two little clips or two little pictures back the one with the scare beetle that i sent you this was uh, oh, no. oh yeah in uh Gordy, spoiler alert yeah yeah Give, we're giving up the ghost here a little bit but Gordy, you're going to have to help substantiate some of this. Like, I'm seeing that she is super connected to the scarab. Wherever the scarab goes, she's popping up. One moment she right. has the scarab, right. when she shows up and she's like, I have it. And she, and then the fight ensues. And then later on when, it, like we just said, he takes off the coat, the scarab ends up on the ground in the alleyway. Well, this is the other half of the Jacob and Esau mythology being reenacted. Uh, the spirit of that story is woven into the spirit of this story because an old man picks up the scarab, finds it on the ground, and Harrow comes up to the old man and speaks these charming words as he approaches him. He says, I wish I could give you food or shelter, but this, my friend, I cannot offer you. And he takes the old man's hands and holds his hands and removes the scarab from the old man. Then he passes judgment on the old man, and the old man dies. That is a perfect correspondence of Jacob taking the uh, birthright from their grandfather as Ooh. he's passing away. Um, and she witnesses it. She's in the background watching him kill this old man in the alley, this uh, euthanasia ritual that is also uh, triggering a lot of people because of the COVID right now, uh, the euthanasia aspect of that scene, it's pretty dark. But then uh, I'm starting to see her and the the scarab and her association with the scarab as like a royal crest, a royal... <laughs> there it is. A there royal, you go. Yes, it's a treasure, a royal family jewel that's, you know, passed. Her grandfather found it, or her father helped find it. They... You know, and I thought it was in this episode. It's actually in the third episode. This is where I I knew 
exactly who she was. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll, because this is the last scene, right? We're just getting at the last well, scene. That one, that, that picture one jumps more ahead. Short scene. Yeah. That, that picture jumps ahead towards the end of the whole arc where she is wearing what I, we just showed. Right. Okay. So um, there's a scene in the next one where she, they were working on her passports. Right. So she's getting initiated. That's right. how the next episode begins. Yeah. Totally. Right. Totally. Can you pull that back up, Chance? Uh, and we are kind of going ahead of ourselves here, but you can see she has this flap in her costume when she, uh, her apotheosis moment, she has this flap. And I just found that really interesting because to me, it reminded me very heavily of this uh, this family crest, this symbol that is passed on in uh, royal bloodlines uh, that is essentially a garter belt on the arm. Like we know about the wedding garter that is around the leg and the ritual behind that. Well, this is another form of a garter uh, that is on the arm and is very subtly occulted in many royal families' paintings. And notice how her fingers in both of these paintings, these are, I think are two different painters. I think they're two different women. I'm not 100%. Maybe not. Maybe it's the same painting with two renditions of the same persona. But see, the fingers are encoding some sort of V, royal bloodline, who knows what, sign language. But it's got this garter, this Q-shaped garter, which is uh, the family. This is part of many family crests, but uh, JFK is included. This is was on the Kennedy family crest. And, and what does the translation say? The translation uh, is, shamed be who thinks of it, who thinks ill of it. Shamed be who thinks ill of it. And that is basically like uh, anybody who judges this, uh, we're rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of us and sticks to you. <laughs> it's it's kind of like a, a, a magic spell protecting anybody from even judging harshly on this crest. Uh, very interesting. But I just have to point out it has B is the second word. And we're talking about queens and royalty. Could it be a queen bee, a shamed bee who thinks ill of it? Just an interesting theory. But there's uh, something really interesting going on with her garment and her royal uh, attire that she wears, hailing back to other royal expressions and sign language of uh, history. There's probably so much more to that <laughs> that we could explore. That's good. I'm going to move us into the final scene here. So Khonsu's like, where do you think you're going? I'm sending you to Egypt. So the next thing that we know is Mark is in a hotel in Egypt. Mark is sitting in front of the bed and Stephen is in the mirror over here. So we're seeing, you know, a different reflection in the mirror than what's happening in real life. But um, he's drinking. He's sitting here getting drunk. So back to the whole idea of alcohol and spirits and possession. Mark has the body and we already know about the Mark connection to spirits, Mark Spector, Mark alcohol spirit. Like you could literally change Mark Spector to be alcohol spirits. <laughs> it, it means that <laughs> that could be his name. So here Which he is, is getting drunk. 
with a yeah. bottle of liquor. And look over here. You see this? This is very slyly hidden here, but there's a little pyramid on the desk. Holy shit. He's building back up again. <laughs> he's building it looks like he's broken a cheap. mirror. Looks like there's a broken mirror here and uh, chairs all disheveled and a, a lantern on the floor. But I need to scan ahead. I don't have a direct screenshot of it, but there is an important. I got, I got one I'm sending you here. Okay. Because uh, we need to look at this whole. There's so much in that. Fleur de Lee slash, what do you call it? Um, the, 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 triple, the pawn shop, triple ball, triple bail, yeah. triple crown. Yeah, I just shot one to you in the telly there. I, I got a point. There's so much going on in this one little scene. It's just a few seconds and it's packed. It's just packed with information. It's kind of like the opening scene of the first episode. Right. And in a way, this is like the end of act one. So it is a very important finale moment. Yes. So you see the binoculars. That's mm-hmm. telling you there's more to see. It's telling you look closely. It's telling you there's so much going on here. There's so many layers. Okay. I'll pull up your version of the image now. Hold on. Okay. Nice. This is this is so wild. It's amazing how many things can be layered in. So the glass. Okay, so the first thing is Dee brought up the fleur de lis, and she said very aptly that the fleur de lis is a cutting symbol. <laughs> and right. I was like, "Wow, you just you just kind of fast forwarded psychically to what we're about to talk about." So this isn't directly the fleur de lis, but it is actually symbolically linked to the very same thing. And now I'm going to let you take it away, Master Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so first of all, we'll point out that he's sipping off of a bottle, right? He's uh, like you said, Mark and the spirits and the spirit of. Uh, which is very interesting because Mercury, Mercury has been teabagging Al Gol for a week, <laughs> uh, or maybe longer, has been sitting resting on Al Gol. So he, coming off of the alcohol is very profound how, how significant that's been all through uh, this Mercury retrograde that this movie came out in sync with, timed up with the, uh, the dance of the heavens. But so he's sipping the alcohol. Well, I got to point out that also, if we're really getting to the nitty gritty on initiation rituals, that's the bris. That sipping off of the bottle is the bris ritual. And we do find out in a later episode, as Jenny points out, that Mark mm-hmm. is Jewish. He's Jewish. So we have the bris ritual. All aspects of initiation are being uh, compacted into this this scene right here. This is the a new dawning. The dawning of a new age, a new morning, like you said, the end of the old scene. We're just coming to the culmination of this episode. Oh, and D says the bottle that he's holding could be a phallus. There is actually a point where Layla attacks the invisible monster with a bottle and the bottle breaks. And then she's brandishing a broken bottle. Very interesting. Well, he's yeah, broken. She's basically like a broken sword symbolism, broken right? masculine. And she's coming to his rescue in that in that aspect. That's a great point. So broken bottles are a huge theme. Well, that goes back to the opening scene where uh, Harrow broke the glass and put it in his gaiters. Well, look really closely. His foot is on top of broken glass right here at the initiation of this scene. So he, like Harrow, he has walked in his shoes now. 
he has uh, he has the same experience, the same scar. They share that same scar, much like everybody who's been circumcised. We all share the same scar. We're walking on in each other's shoes. Now your movements, your decision making in life can be more easily tracked, more easily traced. Because you have this, uh, we all share the same principle, primordial scarring. So profound. It's so profound. They literally, in the audio, when Harrow is walking around through this movie, they put in the sound of, of him walking on glass in the audio. It's very subtly layered in throughout the series going forward. So anybody who gets into this, keep your ears open. He's walking around, literally walking on glass. And it's part of the audio experience. They are really hitting us on some crazy levels. Are you listening with headphones to catch this stuff? No, I just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very audio oriented. I get What's weird. Leo thing. You got um, Leo son. So your the yeah. ears and the heart are connected. In my opinion, yeah. ear is in the middle of the word heart. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I got weird ear stuff. Um, like I, I have weird ear stuff too, Gabe. And yeah. I've, if you, I've not noticed the things that you're noticing, but I have noticed a lot of panning, like spinning panning in the, in the soundtrack to this. It's, it's very, I mean, over the last, what, 10 years since everybody's got a surround sound in their, in their house. Uh-huh. And we've got, we've got these, uh, spatially, um, audio illusions that are happening within the computers they're able to do that five channel kind of thing pretty easily within, you know, your machine. Yeah. And it's, it's translated. So you, we can have like sound coming from wherever sounding like it's right here or right here or right here or right here. And um, I've noticed that with the soundtrack of the, the panning when, uh, with during that scene he's back in egypt he, he and you hear the the soundtrack is is the booming it's not a pop song anymore it's a egyptian like yeah. thing like you are back in the real world like you have an old man singing like this kind of thing and it's like coming all around you yeah it's and but that's the immersion that that yes. creates the illusion of this whole fucking metaverse bullshit that they want us to, to right. buy into. Honestly, we could spend a t- episode just breaking down the outro credits because they're different every time. Yeah, the, uh, you know with, the, with the edit into the outro credits. Also, Gabe, you didn't mention. I'm just going to mention in passing that the scar of the castration ritual resembles the Mickey Mouse head, Mickey Mouse club. Right. They, There's they, a lot of work on that that's been done in the past. Uh, thank you, Tracy, for that information. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. the three rings. And then when he opens the window, the final scene here. Well, first, I didn't pull this up. So here's the what I'm talking about. Mickey Mouse head. That's why you put that there, I'm sure. But he opens the window. And what do we got? Between the two pillars of this framing, whether you consider the pyramids to be the pillars or these Window panes, uh, shutters. What do we got right here? What does that look like to you guys? Yep, center phallus. So there's red. that. It's it's even red. It's like freshly at the top. Yeah, red at the top. The tip. Red with the ring. Just, it, just it the looks, tip. 
It looks like a fucking brist. It's a brist phallus. It just got a fresh brissing. It's oh, crazy. Fresh brist of Bel Air. Yes, fresh brist of Bel Air. That's it. <laughs> and then look just to the right of it is scaffolding. And this is a term that I'm I've been I've actually seen it a lot in the series. There's very subtly there's scaffolding uh salt and peppered throughout the scenery. And that is a term I'm looking at in a new light. Um, scaffolding. Uh, I'm really looking at it in a new light. Um, oh, there's so much to say about that. But you could say that our scar, our common cultural scars that are central to this scene we're talking about, they build a scaffolding. They build a form in our world of forms, in our mind that we all share. And it is a scaffolding that will be developed as you get older and older through your life. Those forms take on more consistency. And I just got to point out, not only is it like implying that they're building ideas in our mind that will fill out in the potential fortune uh, in the future, potentially, it also speaks to the fact that the Black's Law definition of the word form is skeleton. And so now I'm thinking of forms, skeletons, and scaffolding in a whole new light of what they mean, uh, how they're being uh, symbolically instilled into our mind. And the aspect of uh, architecture and its symbolic uh, implications in our life, and this is really weird, but I think that it all hinges on that word bell ding. The bell ding is classical conditioning sound that we were all programmed for uh, uh, 15 years of our life. Bell ding, when the bell dings, you stop thinking, you change the subject, you move on. When the bell dings, we've been Pavlovianly programmed to have a response where we change the subject, we don't think about the subject anymore, we move on. So even the word building has that Pavlovian switch to tell you to stop thinking any further, change the subject, go on to something else. So that's just something I'm kind of filling out, the fact that there's scaffolding on the buildings uh, so frequently and what that might be implying. Uh, and symbolically, it might expand out as the series goes forward. Well, guys, this has been incredible. I do need to get us wrapped up here. I got some, I still need to do some more research before I go to bed for uh, an interview I have tomorrow. So burning the midnight oil tonight for sure, but it's going to be a really good one tomorrow. I'm excited about the interview. So watch out for that. That'll be the next episode of Interverse. And guys, if we can pull it off, want to try to do episode three this week or uh, this next week. If we can pull it off, let me look at my calendar real quick. I know we're talking shop on the air, but it works. Oh, shit. I have pretty full days on Tuesday and Thursday. So we'll see. We'll be in touch. Maybe we'll do it on like a Friday or uh, yeah, maybe Friday of next week. Let's see about it. But okay. Hey, you know, um, days on Friday. I don't know if you guys are open earlier. Mm hmm. No, if it's out, if it's light outside, I want to be out there. Yeah, <laughs> I be outside. If it's rainy or something, maybe we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it, guys. We'll do it. Yeah. 
But what you just said about the bell ding, that is huge. There's so much. I was thinking about like finding a bell sound effect and me like ding, ding. All right, guys, bye. (laughs) (laughs) But that's, I mean, the bell of it all is huge. Bell, bale, bowl, bowl. It's all in the same phonetic mix. Bell, the bell is the Lord. And the bell is always the mimetic device that's always used to get your service. Right. I mean, when for little slave bells to our, our uh, classroom bells. You know, and maybe I, this is a good way to punctuate that rant. I'm also thinking, could there be bones in the stone that makes the buildings? Yes. 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 Especially the older ones. Yes. 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 And yes, children, children were often sacrificed to a building to appease the spirits they thought. Right. And uh, that is a whole nother weave. If you so gave me is, time, I could pull up the, uh, the research on that. Yeah. <laughs> that's so exactly not that far back in history. It's fairly yeah. recent actually, that that's kind of like been forgotten. Right. So this is where the form black's law definition of a form meets up with skeleton and meets up with the scaffolding that makes up the buildings, that makes up the structure of the place that we're in, in a very necromantic fashion. So when we say that I mean, you're even going the, into- uh, it's even possible that for all we know that rocks, every, that everything is organic at some level, and that the rocks of the realm that we're standing on bones of some kind of older creature. Boom. Mic drop. Amethyst drop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys got any last thoughts, closing shots? Um, I'm looking forward to the next one because this... uh, It gets exciting when they're in Egypt. It gets exciting. Also, you start to find out who Layla is. And um, there's another little more research that I'm I'm glad we have another week to do this because I've been trying to ask uh, Michelle of Michelle's healing home about uh, mushroom or uh, marshmallow. Oh yeah. Gordy, you're on it, bro. You're on it. That's totally Egyptian. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, bro. You see, you, did you yep. see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Okay. That's definitely going to come up in the, okay. Thank you. That's going to come yeah. up in the very opening scene that we probably will dissect for an hour. Like every yeah. opening scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> three hours on the five minutes. Hey, I see LC King saying great show. Thanks for hey, joining us, man. Watch out for using that lightning bolt emoji. Somebody told me in a comment that, uh, having the lightning bolt emoji on my name is a symbol of Satan. So watch out. Oh no. Are we all, do we all work for Ukraine now? Uh, <laughs> all right, guys, I'm going to play the music. Thanks for being here, everyone. This has been awesome. I appreciate the very mindful chat. Lots of helpful information and observations yeah, yeah. in the chat. And I'll see you guys on the next one. You guys are the, you guys, Gabe, Gordy, thank you for making this You're possible. Right. Love you much. <laughs> ah. All right. We're out. <laughs>